I mean, what's pro football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. As a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PML. Ready to get into it? Yeah, yeah. All right. We're going team by team. I would be very careful about slinging stuff. Am I going to get sued? Are we going legal on this? I like football. I like football season all the things that go with it. Welcome in to the PFF NFL Podcast. Steve Palazzolo, Sam Monson. We're live on Monday morning to discuss five out of six games from Super Wild Card Weekend here, Sam. We're 83% of the way through the weekend. We still have Bucks and Cowboys tonight. But five games. Most of them were good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Most were good. So we're going to sit here. We're going to spend the next three to five hours going through these five football games. Sounds good. You ready to go? Yeah. All right. I'm excited. Where are you going to start? We're going to go in order. Oh. Yeah, this is easy. This is, it's not like the regular show where there's 16 games or whatever. You got to, oh, where, start which one o'clock game? Do I do the fours? Do I do the big stories? Do I save Sunday Night Football to the end? Yeah. This one, we're going in order. Just so we're going to start. you think. Way back Saturday afternoon, the San Francisco 49ers, 41, Seattle Seahawks 23. But this one was much closer. It was close at the half. And uh, Seattle hung tough. But the Niners pulled away in the end, and uh, easy narrative here is the two-seed 49ers are much better than the Seattle Seahawks. And until the Dolphins gave the Bills a, a run, uh, the, the two-versus-seven matchups have been uh, pretty trash over mm. the last couple of years. But uh, anyway, the, the Niners' offense just continuing to look unstoppable. I know Seattle's defense, I don't think they've been good all season, but um, 40, they had no answers for the 49ers, Debo Samuel, Christian McCaffrey, and of course... Brock Purdy orchestrating the entire thing, finishing 18 of 30 for 332 and three touchdowns and basically every rookie first game playoff record you can imagine for Brock yeah. Purdy. Yeah. Um, certainly coming out of this game, it was one that made you think, is it really worth having seven seeds? You know, are they bringing much to the table in these yeah. playoffs? Like, <laughs> do we need them? Can we go back to a world where there's six seeds and the teams are all slightly better and the games, therefore, should be better? Um, I even put out some uh, misinformation. Did you? Which didn't go viral, but, you know, caught on a little bit. I said the NFL has I, – I forgot that they moved to the seven seed back in 2020. Uh-huh. And um, I said there's been three two-versus-seven matchups in the NFL when there's, at this, after this game when there had, only been, there had really been five. Okay. But th- three straight two-versus-seven matchups had a, uh, you know, win – uh, point differential of 22, yeah. where the two seed had just dominated. But there's definitely games where you get to the playoffs and you're like, okay, it's this team versus this team, and we know that one of these teams is dramatically better than the other. Like, this game is only going to go one way. And that's kind of what happened here. Yeah, Seattle hung tough. It was close. They they had it tied at the half. Um, and then in the second half, the 49ers just kept on hammering away, and Seattle didn't have an answer. Um, and, you know... When, like, the only thing that was keeping them alive in the game was occasionally Gino would hit a bomb to DK Metcalf, and that offsets an awful lot of bad play between, you know, the two of them. So, but, but like, this 49ers juggernaut on offense is pretty insane. Like, the, we've been saying for years that Kyle Shanahan is this tin cup master and can create offense out of virtually nothing. 
he's never had a better group of skill position players. Like whatever about the independent value of Christian McCaffrey generally, clearly adding Christian McCaffrey to what was already in San Francisco is only pouring gas on an already blazing fire. And now you've got McCaffrey, Debo Samuel. Like there are plays where McCaffrey's lining up in the slot, Debo's in the backfield, it's free yards. And then they flip. McCaffrey's in the backfield, Debo's in the slot or out wide. And it's a defensive nightmare. Like you Mm -hmm. can't match up with that pre-snap and they are just able to create offense everywhere. Like McCaffrey breaks off that big long run and you've got people tweeting like, wow, McCaffrey in this offense. You're like, dude, did you see the hole he was working through? Like anybody could have gained 30 on that. He was free. He was free through to the free safety who was being blocked by Brandon Ayuk. Like that's insane. That's almost the perfect play from an offensive point of view. Yes, Christian McCaffrey did a nice job there, but basically any running back in the NFL gains 20 yards on that play. Yeah, it was a. It ended up being a 68-yarder, which is part of where McCaffrey's pretty good, right? He's really good in the open field when you give him uh, 30 free yards, which is yeah. what that play was. But that is the that is the difficulty in defending the 49ers' offense. And I think we should look. Brock Purdy deserves a ton of credit because we've seen we've seen a Dolphins offense that was cooking go to their third-string quarterback, Skylar Thompson, mm-hmm. similar system. Um, and just not have the same level of success. I mean, Skyler hung tough, and he did a lot of good things yesterday. We'll get to that game when we get to it. So I, I'm all I'm I'm in this. I, a lot of uh, my entire weekend is trying to balance out the fact that your entire you know social media timelines watching the same game, reacting, overreacting to every single thing or whatever. So we're always going to bring our, our nuance to take to the uh, to the party here. Brock Purdy's not. Uh, Joe Montana, Steve Young, Tom Brady, Peyton Manning. He's not. Um, and I don't think he's playing like that. But he's hes not missing the stuff that Kyle's scheming up for him, right? Um, even just a couple – you know, some of his uh, tight red zone passes. He actually got – he actually really made a nice throw. Uh, that was dropped late in the end zone. That was his best play was of the best, game. Best play of the game. By a was, mile, absolutely. actually. But there was like little passes like – Third and 10, you throw a five-yarder to Debo Samuel where he outruns the defense for a first down. Of course, Debo Samuel's 74-yarder, which completely inflates Brock Purdy's final stat line, was was all Debo Samuel. But my point is, after Brock Purdy looked a little, you know, too much in the moment early on, some overthrows and, you know, missed a few throws early, he settled down, didn't miss a ton of throws after that, and let the offense work. Debo Samuel, Brandon Ayuk. And, and it is impressive what they're able to do with the run that you described with McCaffrey, the way you ha- you put the defense in a bind with McCaffrey at receiver and Debo in the backfield. All of it put together is a juggernaut, as you, as you described. It was a hilarious game for just how badly box score stats can lie about a quarterback because <laughs> they lied in both directions. Like that, that play to Debo Samuel where it's just like, oh, let's find Debo, and then he just watch him create a touchdown out of nothing. Like, that's, that's almost a nothing play from the quarterback. Yes, he's got to, like, flip his hips and get the ball out of his hands before the, the unblocked uh, defender, you know, running in his direction makes a play, but that's a pretty low bar to clear for a quarterback. Like, yes, you have to achieve that. No, it's not particularly difficult. Um, so, on the one hand, you've got, like, a play where he doesn't really do anything, turns into a, uh, an incredible play because Debo is Debo. On the other hand you have him making a genuinely spectacular play, delivering the ball right to the back corner of the end zone, and Brandon Ayuk doesn't come up with it. It's like the, the box score stats are lying across the board when it comes to Brock Purdy. So 
Yeah, we're in this weird world where, you know, it's 2023 now, Steve. Um, it is. And in 2023, you can only have an extreme take. You can't be anywhere in the middle. So we are duty-bound to declare Brock Purdy either the next Tom Brady, because we've seen this tape before, Steve. Way back in 2001, this little-known six-round quarterback took over, took complete command of the team. 20 years later, a dynasty was over, you know? So... We're watching it happen again. History repeats itself. It's just on a loop. The same thing coming back around time after time after time. We've seen this. Or you have to say, this is all smoke and mirrors. It's all ridiculous. It's going to blow up. Brock Purdy stinks. He was Mr. Irrelevant for a reason. The truth is obviously somewhere in the middle. Like, Brock Purdy is an amazing story. The fact that Mr. Irrelevant right now is leading one of the best teams in the NFL and doing so at a minimum at the same kind of level as the, in, the incumbent starter in this offense, and I would say fairly arguably playing better, uh, is remarkable. It's insane. And at, the, as, at a very minimum, the 49ers are absolutely live Super Bowl contenders and arguably favorites with Brock Purdy at the quarterback. Um, it's also important to point out that he isn't playing as well as his box score numbers because Kyle Shanahan is a magician. And his offense with Christian McCaffrey and Brandon Ayuk and Debo Samuel and George Kittle and Kyle Juszczyk and a good offensive line and the scheme that Shanahan runs is a literal cheat code. Like, the, all of the graphics, they're of the same, you know, genre. The graphics that put Brock Purdy up there with Joe Montana and Steve Young and Tom Brady and the graphics that put Nick Mullins up there with Patrick Mahomes and Andrew Luck, these are all of the same family. They are all the things that they're the PowerPoint presentation that should get Kyle Shanahan into the Hall of Fame at some point. Like someday in, you know, a decade, two decades time, somebody is going to be making the argument for Kyle Shanahan to go into the Hall of Fame. And it is simply going to be whatever the equivalent of a PowerPoint presentation is in the year 2045, where some guy is just going to be, gentlemen, a moment of your time, please. And just puts up all these graphics <laughs> and then sits there, walks off the stage. I'm done. Next. And they're going to go, yep, sold. And Shanahan's in. Like, that's what's happening here. Man, that was good. Well done. Thank you. I don't have much to add. You may have hit everything. Well, the thing to add is that it it isn't as simple as Brock Purdy is being propped up by this ridiculously amazing offense because he is making some impressive plays that you can definitely make the case Jimmy G wouldn't make. Like – the, the play that he made where I dropped the ball. The one everybody, nobody's going to remember. At the end, the game was over at that point too, but yeah. it was his best throw. But, but he made a couple that were like that, right, where he escapes the initial pressure. Okay, admittedly, most of the time this was happening against three-man rushes where it's not the hardest thing in the world to escape pressure from three guys as opposed to four or five. But anyway, he's, he's escaping pressure, he's buying time, he's extending the play and finding what then looks like an easy throw. I don't know if Jimmy Garoppolo makes that play. Like, when the initial pressure arrives, either he throws the ball away, he does something with it, but he's not, he doesn't extend the play long enough to find that extra easy throw that looks great. So, Purdy is adding value on top of this cheat code of an offense, which is why they're out stomping people, like putting up 40 odd points instead of 20. You know, there's a reason that the offense is scoring more points with Brock Purdy versus Jimmy Garoppolo. And I don't think it's necessarily because, like, overall, He's playing lights out, but it's because he's adding three plays a game to what's already cooking. 
and all of a sudden that does make a difference. I think some of those plays too, like the the first two touchdowns that Purdy threw, I mean the the throws themselves were simple, right? They were little, they were very late in the down checkdowns to Elijah Mitchell and Christian McCaffrey, right? But I actually think that is something Purdy's bringing to the table is is patience in this offense. So, so that's why. Ready? I say this stuff about Mahomes a lot, where I start by saying Mahomes is great, but there are there are things that are schemed up. Like there are there are yards and production that you could say this is Andy Reid. Then there's production that you could say this is Kansas City. This is Travis Kelsey. And then there's other plays where it's like this is Mahomes, right? Above and beyond what Kyle Shanahan and his playmakers create, Purdy's adding that little extra bit that maybe Garoppolo hasn't at this point. And I think it's late in the down, and it's 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 some of those pressure uh, those those patient plays, right? Where you're either buying a little bit of time for that other receiver to break open, right? So when that first read or second read isn't there, when the scheme doesn't win, the scheme doesn't win every single uh, down, right? When the scheme doesn't win. Maybe Garoppolo's throwing it away. Maybe he's not buying that extra time. And Purdy's got the patience to just throw what looks like the simplest pass, a check down to Christian McCaffrey, a check down to Elijah Mitchell, which is wide open in the tight red zone for, for a walk-in touchdown. Um, but maybe Garoppolo doesn't make that play at this point. So, yeah, you know, I mean, there, there, are, there are a few extra plays maybe that Purdy's bringing to the table at the moment. But overall, I do think Purdy's level of play is not much higher than Garoppolo's this season. No, I mean, the McCaffrey touchdown, I think, is a perfect example. Like, that's the kind of play where I think Purdy is adding some value to this offense that I'm not sure Jimmy G would bring to the table. On that particular play, he's working the left side of the field, doesn't love either of the options available to him. Kittle, there's a guy close enough that I think he doesn't love it. Um, Brandon Ayuk kind of loses at, at press coverage at the line. So decides he doesn't like that, ends up kind of walking his way into some pressure, but then evades that pressure escapes for long enough and all of a sudden McCaffrey is released nobody's covered him it's a busted coverage and he finds him for a touchdown I don't know that Jimmy G makes that play like at this point in his career I would guess Jimmy G probably takes a shot at Kittle it's a 50-50 jump ball at best in the true sense of the word um I don't you know there's a reasonable chance that play doesn't get made and this is this is a difference between him and Brock Purdy which is why like his numbers are mind-blowing because you have a system that's already putting up crazy numbers and then he's finding two, three, four plays a game to bring something extra on top of that. And that's what means insane wins, insane points totals, and him being put on these graphics with Joe Montana and Steve Young and all the rest of it. Like I was all for this this weekend almost made me reassess the idea of reclaiming the uh, the comparison. Because all of a sudden it's Purdy next to these guys. Skylar Thompson took six seconds to be compared to Dan Marino on the broadcast. Last rookie to start. Yeah. And I'm Dan like, Marino for the Dolphins. Maybe we should just abandon the whole comparison thing and move on. Yeah, because people can't uh, they can't wrap their head around it, right? They can't understand the nuance to it. But either way, here's the, here's the deal with Purdy. He took care of the ball, uh, in part because his misses, when he missed, he missed by a mile. Nobody was catching it when he missed the other day. And he settled down. And let me just add the human, because I like to add the human element here to it. Purdy, as a seventh rounder, does have a cool, calm demeanor to take over, as you said, this offense that was like, everything's there, right? Everything's there. And he could have, uh, he could throw the ball to the defense. He could look like the moment's too big for him. And maybe, it, you know, you get a little jittery early on in the playoffs, I imagine. But, uh, but he settled down. And in this entire season, 
it never looked like the moment was yeah. too big for him. Um, one other statement I want to add to this, right? Remember for years, Bill Parcells, uh, he would always talk about, you know, when you're, when you're drafting a quarterback, you want a four-year starter, right? If you look historically, there was a point in NFL history where the most successful quarterbacks were four-year starters or three-year, whatever it was, like over 40 starts. He had some yeah. – there was some level of experience, right? I wonder if there's still some truth to that, right? The, for years, we've, we've, we've had a lot of these three and outs. We've seen a, a lot of just junior declarations and all that stuff. Purdy was a legitimate four-year starter at Ohio State. We see guys like Kenny Pickett who go from this – like Kenny Pickett two years ago was a mid-level college football starter and he became an elite starter his last year. I do wonder if, if the, the old-school Parcells theory of, I don't know if there's like a 40-star cutoff, but some high level of experience in college does carry over a little bit, right? You're Sam Darnold who only have you know, a couple of years and then they go. Those are riskier guys. And Purdy's got this experience where maybe you do have more of those. I mean, Skyler Thompson's too. I mean, he's got a lot of experience too. I'm not saying it's perfect across the board. But maybe you do want to invest in those guys in the mid to late rounds because it is easier for them to step in. Yeah, I will say, so Kenny Pickett is a really fascinating name to bring up because I think you can make a reasonable argument that Kenny Pickett looks the same in this offense. Like If you put Kenny Pickett where Brock Purdy is right now, the numbers would be similar. Kenny Pickett is not playing any worse than Brock Purdy, and yet he on almost like basically twice the dropbacks at this point Brock Purdy has like double the touchdowns of Kenny Pickett. It's insane. So, you know, I, I always mentioned the Pittsburgh radio that I do the other day. And, and the one guy, uh, Pony, on that show is like being a little facetious, but he loves Kenny Pickett, right? Like every time he throws a touchdown, it's like, oh, Joe Montana touchdown, right? He's joking around. Um, so the fact that Kenny Pickett's graded so well for us, he's loving it, right? Like you guys love Kenny Pickett. But I, and I'm like, he's yeah, he's grading that well. Like he's grading reasonably he's well. He's grading well. Just better than seven touchdowns. But, but he does, you know, he's got a knack for grading well and not throwing for 200 yards. And I mentioned right. that on the radio the other day. But like what the PFF grade is trying to do is trying to say, here's this level of play that the quarterback brought to the table. And when a Brock Purdy takes that level of play, which is similar to what Kenny Pickett has brought to the table the last four or five weeks of the season, right? When Brock Purdy brings this level of play to the table – and then the final stat line is like legendary 130 passer rating, 11 yards per attempt, 330 yards. And then Pickett's bringing this like 180 yards. Here's a touchdown, right? What's the difference? It's playmakers and it's play calling. On offense. yeah. On offense, huge. right? Like, on the one hand, you've got a guy whose offense is making absolute miracles happen. On the other hand, you've got a guy whose offense is actively dragging down the entire the personnel within it. So Kenny Pickett has seven passing touchdowns to 18 big-time throws over the course of his 400 dropbacks or whatever, 440. Brock Purdy has 16 touchdowns and only four big-time throws across his 200 dropbacks. Like, Which is what we said about Garoppolo for a while. Sure. It, yeah. But that's what I'm saying. Like, it, it, it's, it's possible to both credit and commend. Like, that, that in itself, just a guy playing at that kind of level for a rookie Mr. Irrelevant quarterback is incredible. Like, the end. You don't have to go any further than that. Just simply stating that playing at that kind of level, even executing this offense for Kyle Shanahan as, a, as the last pick of the draft, a guy whose college career started off pretty well and then didn't get any better, is a, is a remarkable story. We don't have to call him Tom Brady. Like, we can tap the brakes at, the, at that point. 
we've arrived at our destination. We don't need to go further and say that actually he's every bit as good as his passer rating of 130, and this is the greatest quarterback the game has ever seen. Like, he's basically Kenny Pickett, but in an offense that functions. Not, oh, not only functions, boy. but he's Kenny We're Pickett. We're off to a good start. 20 minutes on Brock Purdy. Good he's, start here. He's Kenny Pickett in an offense that isn't dragging him down and, in fact, is building him up. Like, that's the difference here. Maybe Joe Montana was just a product of the system. Maybe he's just a product of Bill Walsh and Jerry Rice. I mean, don't act like people didn't make that argument. Oh, I'm sure they did. I'm sure the, uh, the podcasts were, were always trying to tear Joe Montana down. In the There's 80s. a reason that people wanted Steve Young starting, you know? A couple other things in this game. So you mentioned, you know, Seattle hung tough, right? They're the underdog. Geno Smith hits DK Metcalf with an absolute dime for a 50-yard touchdown before the half. The other thing that happened before the half that was – it looked like a disastrous play at the time. Jimmy Ward picking up a penalty. Gino, I mean, there's what, like 10 seconds left. Gino I mean, Smith. It was a three point. It was a three point penalty. Mistake. Right. Gino Smith, they, they run one play. He scrambles. He slides. It's going to end the half. Jimmy Ward comes flying in with his helmet, hits him on the slide, and um, it puts uh, Seattle in the outer reaches of field goal range. They hit the field goal before the half. Took the lead. To take the lead at the half. That's the other thing I want to give Purdy credit for because I mentioned this weeks ago as we have been tearing him down for weeks here right the Brock Purdy experience um the second game where the Niners have trailed at the half and come back right the Raiders game a few weeks ago and then this game I'm impressed with that aspect of Brock Purdy as well that it isn't just he's not just a front runner right it's not just when the Niners are up two touchdowns that he's able to facilitate the offense there is something to his ability to um like they, they came out of the second half with a 13 play 75 yard drive Right, so I, I'm impressed with that aspect of Brock Purdy facilitating this offense as well. The fact that the Niners were down at the half as heavy favorites, and um, you know Josh Allen, like Josh Allen, looked like he was pressing a little bit at times yesterday, and uh, and Purdy wasn't. You know, like he just they didn't they didn't flinch, and Purdy didn't flinch. Um, the deep crossing route was just open all day. Mm -hmm. Seattle's defense had no answer for it. Um, Seattle's defense just came back, just came back to bite, man. They haven't been good all season, so yeah. Um, their offense managed to keep Nick Bosa pretty quiet. Didn't really do anything as a pass rusher. Had a few nice plays against the run, but this was not a game where Nick Bosa on that side took over and absolutely dominated. Like Seattle's offensive line held up reasonably well. DK Metcalf was winning his one-on-one -on -one matchups with Charvarius Ward in particular. Um. Gino made a couple of mistakes later as the game progressed, and that kind of was the difference. Like, they they hung tough. Hanging tough was built a lot on basically just waiting until Debo wins. Or not, not Debo, DK Metcalf wins one-on-one, -on -one and, and Gino dropping in a dime. We've seen that all the way through the season. Like, his big-time throw numbers are insane. But the other thing we'd seen all the way through the season is he also has one of the highest turnover-worthy play rates of any, you know, certainly any well any good quarterback any quarterback playing well this season he's got the same turnover worthy play rate on the year as Josh Allen who we've been lampooning all the way through the season saying this is not good enough for a guy that wants to win a Super Bowl so eventually a couple of those turnover worthy plays came back to bite um, and at that point like they weren't able to stop the 49ers at all full transparency here I, I want to talk about Lenore the cornerback uh, for the Niners but I've never actually said his first name out loud oh dear so I don't want to. I'm not Lenore for the. Oh, you're just uh, not going to try. Oh no. Oh. Okay. I said full transparency, right? You're supposed to be. No, I thought that was leading up to like a butchery of his name. But you no. Just, okay. 
starting cornerback for the Niners, number 38, Lenore. Mm. Um, 55 coverage grade on the season. Looks like the weakness. He has the game of his life, game of his uh, season, 90 coverage grade. Had the interception when Geno forced it in the comeback attempt. And um, that was huge. I mean, that was huge for the Niners, right? Traverius Ward on the other side is kind of going head-to-head with DK Metcalf. Uh, Traverius was their offseason free agent pickup, has been fantastic this year. The Niners have few weaknesses on defense. Their linebackers were flying around the field again in this game. But uh, Lenore's the one who uh, who stepped up, and you know that's that's huge going forward for this Niners team as well. Yeah, that's all. Okay. Wanted to, just wanted to add that. I, so the other the thing mix. before this game, um, the NFL came out and basically said that they screwed the Lions last week in the officiating of the Seattle game. They were like, okay, bad officiating. Which which call? There was like all six of them. of them. All of them. Yeah, they were like, we got it. <laughs> it was a bad, bad officiated game. Uh, the Lions got hosed. Sorry, essentially. Um, I This game sort of had me questioning, like, would the Lions or the Packers have held up any better than the Seahawks in this game? I feel like Green Bay would have got stomped the same. Detroit maybe would have given them more of a game. But it, but it did feel like overall, whoever the 49ers played, would have they would have just steamrolled them. They're just too good. Yeah, Detroit would have been fun because maybe their offense, maybe yes. they could scheme up enough offense to keep it going. It did feel like the, the, the Aaron Rodgers Packers have not looked good against the 49ers, and Ever. this would have been the biggest mismatch in that series. You know, as much as it's like, hey, you have Aaron Rodgers on the other side, anything can happen, or, you know, I don't know. Yep, yeah, it could have been a better game with, uh, with other teams. The other story that came out, I don't know if it was Rap Sheet or whoever it was, saying it does sound like Seattle's committed to Geno Smith for 2023 and beyond. Geno Smith's a free agent. Um, when we when we sit back and look at the 2022 season, unbelievable that Geno Smith um, led the league in completion percentage and was a top ten graded quarterback during the regular season and all that stuff. I do think that the turnover worthy plays were a little much, right? He tied for the league lead with Josh Allen, mm. but the big time throws were there as well. So there's something to build around. It'll be fascinating to see what Geno Smith's contract is like, right? Because every big starter who comes up, it's like it used to be 30 million, now it's 45 to 50 for the high-end starters, is Geno Smith now in Ryan Tannehill $30 million territory and all that stuff. We'll spend all offseason talking about that. But the story there is Seattle's picking high in the draft as well. Could be in the quarterback market if they want to go that route. But if they go Geno Smith, they're going to go grab perhaps one of the two or three best defensive players in this draft because they need it. And, um, you know, it's it's an interesting move here for Seattle if they do go the Geno Smith route, and and depending on – you know, how much they end up wanting to pay him. Mm-hmm. All right, that's game one. Easy. Nailed it. The PFF NFL podcast is sponsored by Western and Southern Financial Group. While you focus on your roster moves, Western and Southern helps advance your money moves. Buying your first home, planning to start a family, wondering how to make your money grow? Well, Western and Southern's playbook of life insurance, investment, and retirement solutions helps you rest assured on game day. Team up to understand needs and address goals with a game plan built just for you. Get like a Kyle Shanahan-level game plan over there at Western and Southern. You can get started at westernsouthern.com slash PFF. All right, let's go to the Saturday night game. I mean, this might be the biggest the biggest storyline of the weekend. Chargers-Jags. The Jags pull it off 31-30. to 30. They were down 27 to nothing. The Chargers, everything's going right for the Chargers. It's 27 to nothing. Then the Jags go on a 31-3 to 3 run to finish the game yeah 31 to 30 
the Jags win and move on in the playoffs. They'll be going to Kansas City for the first game next Saturday. People are calling for Brandon Staley's head here, Sam. Everybody wants Brandon Staley fired because the Chargers lost. Not only did they blow the lead, but they did not have Mike Williams on the field because he did get hurt in the meaningless Week 18 game. Mm. What are your initial thoughts on the game, obviously, but also Brandon Staley? I want to start from a Chargers perspective, even though the Jags won, because I think most of the the two big stories are Trevor Lawrence does it again, right? He's he's this – Comeback artist now. Um, he led this incredible comeback. Absolutely true. And then Brandon, Sta- Brandon Staley blew it, right? It's all, it's all Staley's fault in Los Angeles. I think extreme comeback games are very difficult for people to analyze at the end because I don't, I don't know how you treat the totality of both of those halves, right? So generally speaking, I think there is this want to – label the team that lost from the comeback just a collapse a choke job a disaster but doing that immediately invalidates or ignores the them being up a giant amount in the first place so coach saturday took a lot of crap for the colts collapsing against minnesota for the largest comeback in nfl history you know 33 nothing at the half you end up losing the game well that's obviously bad coaching like okay but you know at some point, you need to acknowledge the fact that they were 33 up in the first place and weren't supposed to be there. You know what I mean? So the Chargers being 27 up in this game is relevant to deciphering what happened overall. Now, then you need to at least acknowledge how, they, how that happened. How did they build the lead in the first place? And this is where I think both of the two teams that collapsed, the Chargers and then the, the, Vi- or the Colts earlier in that Vikings game, ran into trouble <clears throat> when you build the giant lead through turnovers and in particular like fortuitous turnovers so not like you're making a ton of plays you're doing incredible work on defense but like there was a batted pass that got tipped by two different people before it landed in the hand of a defender i want to talk about lawrence's interceptions um, yeah. or a complete mugging by Asante Samuel on a receiver that they just didn't bother calling because this is playoff football now where the rules change, only we don't tell anybody, and we arbitrarily decide when and when we're not going to enforce these. So when stuff like that happens, and it's like on any other day, that's a clear and obvious defensive penalty, but here we're just going to let it slide and call it an interception. Unlucky. Um, And then, okay, then you get a bad interception from Lawrence where you just never see Samuel um, on a crosser. But like when you build an off, when you build a lead off a series of plays that tend not to happen and tend not to be repeatable, then when they stop happening, all bets are off again, right? And now you just need to see where you are. Um, so that I think is is what happened in both these two games is that a, a series of weird things happened, and as long as that happens early, <clears throat> as long as that happens early enough in the game, when it stops happening, there's a lot of time left for the other team to get back into it, and. What was amazing to me in this game was just how early it became clear that Jacksonville were going to have a real chance of coming back. Um, when they were driving to come to, to get to 27-7, it was like, this isn't over. This is not by any means done. There's a lot of time left on this clock. Um, and that's before you get to the idea of, this is the Chargers. I mean, you know. <laughs> All right, well, let's start, let's start with how how it became 27 to seven because yeah so to to your point though sam 
how much of it is because <clears throat> we have people like, oh, this is the momentum guy. Momentum's real. Look, it's about, yeah, whatever. Tony Dunn's had a lot of big momentum uh, monologues during this game. Yeah, I mean the momentum thing, whatever. How much of it is here are two teams that are somewhat equal, right? The Chargers and the Jacks. It was a three point spread. They're they're close, right? I mean, how much of it is just two teams who are pretty close? One team had all their good plays in a tight amount of time in the first, you know, 15, 20 minutes of the game, and the other team had all their good plays later, right? I mean, it, so yeah. it, that changes the narrative if you just look at, like, there's going to be 65 to 70 plays on both sides of the ball, and if you just have all your good ones early or all your good ones late, it's like, oh, you this, this is a team that had a comeback. Now, again, the human element is is real, and there is something to, hey, we're up 27 to nothing. There's a There might be a way to play that's different. And honestly, in today's NFL, the way to play is probably just keep playing. It's yes. not – you can't just sit on the ball when it's 27 to nothing, right? But and when you're down, that, you can't panic, but right? I also think you can't come very, off your game plan. You just got to keep executing and executing and executing. Yes, that's the thing. I think – so what I think we have learned recently is that teams on the losing end of these games have figured out how to play, right? They have understood there's a lot of time left and all you got to do – I mean, Doug Peterson gave the perfect – explanation Perfect of answers. what exactly was going to happen coming out of the half. He was like, we just got to keep chipping away. Keep chipping away at this. There's a lot of time left. This can happen, essentially. And that's all they did. They just kept chipping away. And as long as you keep scoring and getting stops, you have plenty of time left to make this happen. And that was all the Vikings did. As long as you keep going and you stop them, you can come back. There is a lot of time left in an NFL game to put up scores as long as you keep executing. So that part, I think teams have figured out doesn't matter if we're down four scores. Four scores is nothing. We have 30 minutes to make this happen. Four scores? Come on. We've seen teams put up two scores in like a minute. This is not difficult. But I do Also, think, literally, the team on the other side just went 27 nothing on us. Right. We could do the same right. thing to them. But I do think teams haven't figured out the other side of this, which is how to play when you're up five scores. How to play when you're up four scores. Because... I think you're correct in that the plan should be to just keep doing what you're doing, but this is what I'm saying where the problem comes. If what you were doing was just getting lucky, then you didn't have anything to keep doing, right? I don't think – so I don't think the Chargers got lucky early in the game. I, mean, I think – so it the perspective here, I think Trevor Lawrence, the quarterback whose stats we all look at, Trevor Lawrence got unlucky outside of one pass. Oh, yeah. I want to break down all four of his interceptions. Trevor Lawrence got unlucky. I think the Chargers – had a very good game plan at the start. It did feel like, well, you, you mentioned it, playoff football, you get away with a little bit more, you're more physical. The Jags don't have the most physical receivers. It did look like they came in, the Chargers, and said, not only is it the playoffs, but I don't think Christian Kirk and Zay Jones and Evan Ingram, who's lined up wide all the time, I don't think they're very physical. We're going to play physical football. And they did. They got away with stuff, right? So I think that was a specific game plan by the Chargers. And then, credit the Jags, because what they started doing is saying, we're actually not going to target you know, on the outside a ton. We're actually not going to target Asante Samuel, who's getting away with all this stuff. We're going to target the middle of the field. And as the Jags started taking the short stuff in the middle of the field, that opened up everything else. So I thought the Jags' adjustment was awesome as well. But I thought the Chargers, yeah, a batted pass you know, gets intercepted. That, there's luck in that, right? Mm -hmm. Trevor Lawrence, so his four interceptions. The first one, batted pass, gets tipped twice by the Chargers, gets intercepted. The second one that you mentioned, Asante Samuel, top of the route, jostling, and then just 
ends up right at the catch point. Trevor Lawrence, that's a timing route on fourth down, by the way. Yeah. On fourth down, like the interception usually doesn't matter except there was a return on it. Fourth down, he throws a timing route. He's expecting his receiver to turn around, work down the stem, and, you know, at worst it's broken up, right? But the receiver's not there because he just got owned and yeah, or interfered with. Yes. And Asante Samuel gets an interception. What's driving me crazy about this stuff, because I, I, I'm on social media too much here, Sam, and it's uh, during these island games, and they're all island games here in the playoffs, mm. and everybody's like, Trevor, what are you doing? Trevor, what are you doing? Oh, Trevor, oh, Trevor, what are you doing? What are you I'm throwing a timing route on fourth down that at worst is going to get broken up. And now it's an interception and my stats look bad. Oh, no, I got two interceptions. Now, the third one's terrible. Yeah. Third one was great. I mean, again, it looked like the Chargers had this incredible scheme, right? They're physical on the outside. Then Char Jags are running the mesh concept. They disguised with zone. And it was a terrible misread by Trevor Lawrence. And Asante Samuel's there. Mm -hmm. And it's like, man, this is Asante Samuel Sr., He's making zone plays, got eyes on the quarterback. He's physical at the catch point and, you know, winning and just, just has a knack for turnovers. That's what he looks like coming out of Florida State. So um, that interception was definitely on Lawrence. And then the fourth one was Evan Ingram. And um, it may have been a little bit of a force, the deep dig route, but it's another one where you're throwing a timing route and expecting your receiver to break on the ball. And at worst, it gets broken up. Right, but Evan Ingram just gets bossed at the catch point, and it's another interception by Asante Samuel, which um, again I think I don't think that was luck by the Chargers. Asante Samuel making all those plays I don't think was luck. Well, I think it was bad luck for Trevor Lawrence specifically that he had three out of his four interceptions that probably shouldn't have been, and they all got picked off. So from Trevor Lawrence, he was unlucky. I thought I think the Chargers very much earned their lead. They were good offensively. They were cooking. Herbert was uh, distributing the ball. They were creating yards after the catch. The Chargers earned their lead outside of the tip pass was lucky. But Trevor Lawrence was unlucky, and the Jags were unlucky to be in that situation. Yeah. I mean, so when you, when you, bat a, when you get an interception off a batted pass, that's kind of lucky. That's right? lucky. I know. It gets, it gets batted down most so of the time. And there was a play – by the way, there was a play in the second half where Kyle Van Noy actually had an easier opportunity for an interception on basically a batted pass and dropped yeah, it, right? I mean, like look, those things, those offset. There's a whole conversation about, you know, what you, how you treat a batted pass from a quarterback because I, it, there were people on Twitter like, well, that's a bad pass, but that's a bad play by Trevor Lawrence. You've got to see there's a guy in your lane and not throw the ball into his hands. You're like, okay, but Justin Herbert had like three uh, batted passes in this game and none of them managed anything. I don't know why he was anything. throwing everything sidearm. He's actually... So Herbert has a stupid number of batted passes, which I actually didn't know until Listen, they were bringing it up in this broadcast. Bat, you know, batted passes—they're they're not height-driven; they are. Correct. They are related to where you're throwing the football. When you throw more passes right over the center, right over the ball, right that five-yard area in the middle of the field, you're going to have more batted passes. Justin Herbert leads the NFL in batted passes this season. Twenty-three of them uh, in the regular season. No, twenty-three it, of them, including this game. It's like a little um, bit of an arm angle thing, not a ton. A right. little bit of an arm angle thing. And he's six. But six. a lot of when you throw, his average depth of target is under eight for the third straight year. That's well below average. Bottom five in the league. When you throw short, particularly over the middle, you're going to have more batted passes over time. He's the tallest quarterback in the NFL, and he leads the league in batted passes. Um, but he, he had four in this game. And I actually, to the point where I was wondering if Jacksonville saw that on tape and decided specifically, yeah, 
get your hands up in his face all of the time because that guy is throwing passes sidearm all the way and you can actually cause a lot of bad passes here anyway my point being Justin Herbert had four passes in this game that were batted any of which could have just taken a lucky bounce and ended up intercepted right like so either you declare that every single one of these plays is a potential turnover worthy play because the quarterback has no control over what happens once it's batted up in the air or you say look you can avoid generally some some batted passes on the other hand, there are hands in the throwing lane basically the entire time. Defenders do that. And whether or not it becomes an interception versus just a batted pass, tip ball, whatever, is bad luck, right? I Yes, maybe there is a way that Trevor Lawrence could have avoided a guy getting his hand on that throw. On the other hand, most of the time it doesn't happen and it doesn't become intercepted. Anyway, it, it was bad luck from a Trevor Lawrence point of view. It was good luck from a Chargers point of view. And immediately they're set up in the red zone. Um, the other the lucky fact, Chargers play, though, too, is the punt that right. goes off. The That's jet. what I'm saying. Yeah. So then you get you mug a receiver, and it doesn't get called for illegal contact. It becomes an interception. That's lucky. Like, yes, playing more physical is one thing. But, like, full-out mugging a guy and then getting away with it is lucky. And then, sure, eventually, like, Jacksonville's defense finally gets a stop and muffs the punt at the end of it. You're like, also lucky. Like, the Chargers absolutely relied on a ton of luck, and they took advantage of it. Like, they converted these good starting position or uh, fortuitous turnovers, and they racked up a 27 nothing lead. But my point being, that was not built off them being dominant. It was built off them getting a bunch of fortuitous plays that stopped Jacksonville doing anything and them getting the ball. So if that suddenly dries up, there's nothing left to, like, just keep doing what we're doing, lads. Like, but what you're doing is just take, like, just land, the ball's landing in your hands a bunch of times. Like, you're getting lucky here. That's what you're doing. You can't keep doing that if the luck stops happening. Yeah. So, I, mean, I think we both agree. I mean, there was some level of luck there that got to 27 to nothing. And I thought the Chargers also looked good. Both sides of the ball. They looked pretty good. They could have done better in the red zone offensively, but they looked good overall. It looked like off-season Chargers for a while. What we thought the off-season Chargers were, right? Bosa and Mack and the player are all, all on the field. They got all these stars. They're Asante Samuels forcing those turnovers, right? It seemed like in the offseason they were making a point to force more tor- turnovers and get the ball back into the hands of their offense, right? Get it, Having Asante Samuel and a J.C. Jackson out there, guys who just have a nose for the football, it looked like it was all working. Then it all fell apart. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that. So the drive before the half was absolutely huge. It's 27 to nothing. And the Jags go and score a touchdown to make it 27 to 7. Because even after this mess, the Chargers were getting the ball in the second half. That happens yeah. a lot in the football game, right. in, in NFL games too, right? Where the team who gets the ball, the double dip, they get thing. the extra possession. But no, but I'm saying, like, when you get, usually teams that build this big first half lead also got the ball first, right? The Chargers were the opposite. They, they were getting the ball in the second half after everything went right in the first half. So it did look like it was going to be a, a huge challenge for the Jaguars. But they got the stop in the second half, and they did just keep chipping away and chipping away. And I think you finally tweeted when it was 27-13, to 13, like, okay, this is a game. And I think we all, you all kind of sense it, right? You all sense that because we see this all the time. We see these football games way more than we ever have. I So – I wanted to tweet while they were making that drive. They were still 27 nothing down at this point, but they looked like they were going to score in that drive. I wanted to tweet, like, Jacksonville has a shot at coming back here. But we're in this world now 
where people spend their lives on so on Twitter during games waiting for a tweet that could look bad in an hour and be like, yeah, this age well, idiot. And I was like, no, I can't, I can't tweet anything that will look silly in an hour's time. So what I have to say is uh, something like, well, this can go both ways, but there's a lot of time left in this game. You know, that way I'm covered. Like if it keeps going south and Jacksonville ends up losing by 40, I had that. Or if Jacksonville does execute a comeback, I got it right then too as well. So I ended up like charting this middle course, whereas what I really wanted to be like was Jacksonville might actually come back here. Because it felt like that. Even nothing had gone right. And then one drive before halftime. And you're like, this is 27-7. That's the three scores. That's nothing in a game like this with a whole half to go. And the Chargers being the Chargers. Like, this is not over. That's the thing. It was amazing how early in this game it was clear that despite everything going wrong for Jacksonville, if they just stop screwing up, this could easily happen. So you got to find that balance like I did. Uh, Trevor Lawrence's hot streaks have been elite this season. If he finds a groove, the Jags could make this a game. <laughs> I found that balance. Yeah. This one didn't take off. Nobody went back and gave me credit. No one old takes exposed me yeah. and said, wow, you called it-ish. You hedged enough that you called it. It did occur to me at one point, this is the thing that I got the most crap for. Because I tweeted, half the tweets I do during the games are just jokes, you know? But I tweeted, like, can you imagine how how rough a night it would be? Because they, they kept showing these people in the pool, you know, in the stadium, which exists, by the way, because people weren't going to the stadium absent of this, the swimming pool. So they built a pool to keep people in the building. Um, but there are all these people, you're like, can you imagine driving your soggy, damp ass back from a game after watching your team just get annihilated in the playoffs. You still on that take? Mitchell Schwartz said, hey, we have towels in this country. I'm sorry, but a towel just isn't cut. Like, I've been back from a pool multiple times having toweled myself dry. You're still damp, soggy, and it's not great. It's a heated right? pool, right? It's 40 degrees over I'm there. I'm sure it's a heated pool. But either way, like, can you imagine a worse night than driving yourself back from the pool having watched your team get wrecked right, in the playoffs? And then obviously they end up coming back, so it wasn't an issue. Stay focused. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to flip to the Jaguars perspective here. Um, somebody DM'd me, and I appreciate when the – not when the – don't DM me too much. I appreciate when the listeners, you know, they they respond. And it was like, hey, Trevor Lawrence, this was full Andrew Luck. You're, you're – uh, as much as I'm, I'm absolving Trevor Lawrence of having four interceptions, he also didn't play well, right? The Jags played horribly in that first half and, and – not it shouldn't have it shouldn't have equaled four interceptions, but the offense was bad, right? There was a point where he had what four interceptions and like four completions or whatever it was. So the offense was bad, and uh, some listeners said, "Hey, this was full Andrew Luck, right? You know, set the fire and then you know put it out." Basically, uh, this is what I had expected from Trevor Lawrence, right? Remember the Raiders game this year is when he completely flipped a switch, turned a corner. It was it was the first time where he really Trevor Lawrence stepped up and started making plays in a comeback opportunity and was like, man, I got a special arm, special athlete. I'm going to make these special plays. I'm going to put it all together. I'm going to make these comebacks that the average game manager can't make, right? And he goes out there and he does it. And he did it multiple times throughout the season, the Ravens game as well, right? When they needed to make big plays. And when Lawrence gets hot, you're going to see, very much like a Josh Allen, you'll see two or three big-time throws in a row where it's like, what? Where did those all come from? This game was a little different. It wasn't just big-time throws. There's coverage busts in there. There's, But it was it was a methodical, 
Lawrence didn't didn't care that he had four interceptions on the board already, mm. whether they were his fault or not. They had the mentality to be able to come back. And I think that's huge. I think this is why the Jags are now in the final four of the AFC, the final eight. We're going to see them more, right? I don't know if Lawrence is in the is is in the Burrow, Mahomes, Allen conversation yet, but he's on his way. And games like this are a part of it, right? Again, not because the final stat line was incredible, not because the final PFF grade was incredible, but because we know he's capable when you're down four scores to be able to lead these comebacks, right? And he had done it before during the season. And you have Doug Peterson at the helm saying, just keep chipping away, keep chipping away. We're not going to get it all back in one throw. And Lawrence executed it, right? And the whole offense executed it. And it's a whole different Jags team because of that. Agreed. Lawrence finally went full Andrew Luck. Yeah. Lawrence. I mean, that's what that's what we thought he was going to be coming out, right? There'll be some growing pains. He might turn the ball over a little bit, but it's okay. He can bring you back. Yeah. I mean, that's like, what Trevor Lawrence is. He's shown that he could be that in the second half of the season. There's a huge amount of value to a quarterback not getting rattled, having thrown four interceptions in the first half. Like he had no. one. Everybody's going like pro football reference. What's the record? Oh, two more. You'll get to yeah. Brett Favre. What would Favre do in this situation? He'd throw two more. I mean, people were bringing up like when you're getting referenced in the same conversation as Nathan Peterman, things have gone south. You know what I mean? And to not care in the moment is impressive. Like it, it is a notable achievement to be able to put all that to the side and say, I mean, we know what we need to keep doing. We need to keep swinging. Like there's only, you can't stop. Like what the hell? I'm already four interceptions into it. What is another two? Like, it doesn't matter at that point, so keep going. So, yeah, absolutely. Kudos to Trevor Lawrence. This was the guy people expected to see even after the the rough start. Um, very Andrew Luckian in terms of putting out the fire that you were at least in part responsible for starting in the first place. Sure, maybe the sparks came from somewhere else, i.e. the batted pass and the, the mugging uh, that turned into an interception. On the other hand, you then fanned the flames uh, by the other two interceptions. Um, but the other thing... So once the comeback starts, two things have to happen. Number one, the Chargers have to stop scoring because, again, like the Colts, if you just put up any kind of points in the second half, they don't have enough time. You, you've got enough time to score the number of possessions you need to overcome the point differential you're in a hole over. You don't have enough to keep doing it if they keep adding to that. You know what I mean? Yep. Like you can add four, five, six touchdowns in the second half, but – if they keep adding to that total, now you got another one to add and the time is less. You just run out of time. So the Chargers had to stop scoring, which happened. And then the other thing needs to happen is you need to keep racking up those possessions yourself, which means in key high leverage situations when there are massive defensive plays, you need to avoid screwing that up. So the Chargers had a couple of these drives where they almost got them stopped. And then something happened. And this, when, you know, the NFL is admitting, oh, actually, that, that Seahawks game last week, really badly officiated. Our bad. Sorry. This game was atrociously officiated. It was a disaster from an officiating standpoint. Um, they called Joey Bosa being lined up in the neutral zone offside on a huge sack on third and seven midway through the third quarter. Um, you didn't think he was offside? I think he. I think so, he was offsides. I don't. I don't think Tony Dungy thing, helped no, the no, case. No, no. But, but here's the, <laughs> Tony the, Dungy drew a crooked line <laughs> showing that he was offsides. It's like, well, that did, doesn't help. 
He tells him to tell a straighter the line like crosses a yard and a half. You're like, there you and go. I'm not. He's I'm offside. Not, I'm not picking on Tony. It's not. I mean, I, I would. Is there not like? I would bring a ruler. I wouldn't, forget the, the ruler. Have we not reached the point in the technology where you can just like click and click and it draws a straight line? You don't need to like. Oh, that's right. Freehand it. Is the telestrator only freestyle, <laughs> or could you choose make a circle, make a straight line? I would have chosen the straight line. Like Paint has this. Yeah, that's what which I'm is saying. my. Um, which is my go-to. This doesn't feel like it's a tricky technology to have mastered in the year 2023. Tony drew a cro crooked line, be like, look, he's off sides. <laughs> it's like, I mean, when you draw a line like that. So yeah. this is one of those, we, we've reached the point now, playoff football, right? They, they officiate it differently. They move the lines a little bit because they don't want silly little penalties defining the game. They want to let him play a bit more, right? So this is one of those things where Lining up in the neutral zone is, generally speaking, one of my least favorite penalties to commit as a player because it's so easy, right? You just, you're literally looking down the line as an edge defender. You should, by, de by definition, you should be able to see if your own stupid head is in the neutral zone, like by where you're looking. And they don't, and they get called offside. This was one where if you draw the line correctly using the ruler, Yes, he's probably in the neutral zone. On the other hand, I suspect you can find 10 more plays from this game where the exact same thing is true, not necessarily for Bosa, but for players in general. And this is the one you decide to call? It's like either it's egregious, which it wasn't, or you let it go. To pull that out on third and seven where they're getting a sack that like is a massive turning point in this game, I think was pretty ridiculous. I Jacksonville then up, They end up then converting... The third and two off the back of that. So it moves it from third and seven to third and two. They score a touchdown. Now it's 14-27. If they get that sack and end that drive, I mean, that's probably the game. Oh, there's so many what-ifs in this game. I challenge you to go find another neutral zone infraction that was uncalled, though. Don't make me do it. I, Don't make a me more call. egregious call was Gerald Everett up the seam, dropping the ball. The ball's like rolling on the ground, but the Chargers rushed up and you know got the playoff. That was great, but that but that missed call was huge. Yeah, there's a ton of missed calls, but that I mean, look, I'm just saying, God, you're gonna make me do it. I'm gonna have to go through this game and find, not now. Do not do it on the show. More. We're having a pot. We're trying you're to have some make me do it discourse here. We have a lot to talk about in this game. Plays and we're like, there you go. Do not do it right now. I will cut your ultimate access if you do it on the show right now. I will cut it. It one play. Let's it's, talk about this. It took game. me one play. I literally called up the very first play. There is no way he lined up offsides, and they just like, oh, fine. The Let's very first the play. The We're going to save this for the third. The and very seven. first drop back is the same. It is not game set no and way. match, I, sir. Draw a line. Let me see it. I got gotcha. you. Give me a crooked line. So it's twenty-seven fourteen. The Chargers go up thirty to fourteen. They bust a coverage. Zay Jones runs through the defense wide open for a thirty-nine yarder. So there were other really key plays in this game. The uh, It's 30-20. to 20. The Jags go score a touchdown, nine-yard touchdown to Christian Kirk. So it's 30-26. to 26. Normally, you're like, okay, we're down four. You kick the extra point to go down three. The ja But Joey Bosa picks up another penalty here, Sam. Mm. His second personal foul. The first one was he said something to the ref. This is his second one, slamming his helmet. Um, did I see the video right, too? Staley handed the helmet back to him, and he <laughs> slammed, it slammed it again. Hilarious video. It's like, Joey, you dropped this. I no, I didn't. I slammed it. 
<laughs> yeah, I, tweet, I retweeted the video. It is hysterical. Bosa going off the field, livid, fires his helmet into the floor like five yards before he gets off the field. Staley is like, oh, no. Runs, grabs, retrieves his helmet from the floor, like goes to the sideline, hands it back to him. Bosa's like, what? I threw this away. Damn it. Tosses it back into the floor and then marches to the bench. Well described. I mean, so this leads to, okay, so you, when, when the penalty happens, now you can take 15 yards on the kickoff or you can take the extra point at the one. The Jags choose the extra point at the one. Mm -hmm. And why would they do this? They may have done this regardless of the penalty, right? This is the whole, you're down 14. And instead of just kicking an extra point to go down seven, you actually go for two to try to get within six, right? Um, only because that next score wins you the game instead of tying it, right? This is a common analytical strategy here, right? If you don't get it, great. We'll just go for the touchdown next time anyway. And needing a touchdown isn't that much worse than needing a field goal when you're coming from behind because you're going to use the four downs, right? When you're down four versus down three, you know you're using all four downs. It's not the worst thing in the world to have to score a touchdown rather than kick a field goal. So the Jags go for two. And, and it's only from the one-yard line. And it was a really cool play because they put they call the play, whatever it was, and Trevor Lawrence sees an opening, and he doesn't run the play, and he just leaps forward for a touchdown. Um, I believe Peterson was like – I mean, they call, they have a screen, uh, a screen called on this play. And Lawrence just reads it, dives forward over the, you know, over the goal line, and gets it to go to 30-28 to 28 within two points. Awesome read by Trevor Lawrence. You don't see this often, but, you know – the QB sneak package in general is important. And uh, Lawrence makes a great play. And that sets up when the, Jag when the Jags finally get back into field goal range. That it wasn't a game-tying field goal. It was a game-winning field goal. Lawrence made a few plays where he audibled and changed into something else. And every time he did it, it worked. Like, that's another part of this whole Trevor Lawrence comeback and um, keep going, you know, keep doing what he's doing. And the Andrew Luck thing, it wasn't just – Trevor Lawrence executed whatever was sent in from the sideline and did a good job, and congratulations. Like, multiple times in this game, and in really key situations, he changed whatever was called, saw something, changed to something else, and every time he did, it worked. From that play, it was also the, the bomb uh, he hit against the coverage bust where he changed the play, saw something he liked, audible into it, and took advantage of an absolute collapse by the Chargers' defense on the play – deep bomb and all of a sudden we're we're really cooking now every time lawrence saw something at the line changed the play he got it right all right so then on the i, I want to circle back to a couple of the reasons why the Chargers were in this point in this spot too right it was 27 to nothing and then the jags go on a 28 to 3 run mm -hmm. ironically before they kick the final field goal um there were two plays that we're a huge factor here. You said to, for a comeback to happen, the Chargers have to stop scoring and the Jacks have to score a ton. On a third down in the tight red zone, Justin Herbert misses a wide open Keenan Allen. At the time, I think this is what made it 30 to 14, right? Like you're up two scores. I don't think it was that big of a deal at the time. It may have been before they got to 27. I don't remember specifically. I just know Allen was wide open and Herbert airmailed it in the end zone. And at the time, it was like, oh, the Chargers are up a million. Nobody cares. Obviously, that mattered, right? That that was a four-point miss, right? We picked on Lawrence last uh, last week in the Titans game for a four-point miss in the red zone. They got three instead. And then later in the game, the Chargers missed a 40-yard field goal. A 40-yarder that should have been a gimme 
right? And, and this isn't even like the analytics people say, oh, they should have gone for it. I, I think people probably did because the numbers say go for a lot of stuff. But a 40-yard field goal also changes this game a little bit. Yeah. Um, one of those plays doesn't change the game a ton probably, right? Just one of them, the Jags are still going to drive and they'll have a, a touchdown opportunity. But both of those plays, a touchdown, four-point miss, and then the field goal does change the course of this game. That's the fine line we're talking about with the Chargers here. Well, so what I would ask is we the the reaction from a lot of people coming out of that game was, oh, Brandon Staley's an idiot. Fire him. This is ridiculous. Co coaching collapse. Brandon Staley's to blame. He's the coach. Fire him. Uh, what of the elements that, have, that had to come together for the Chargers to throw this game away and Jacksonville to win, which of them would you say Brandon Staley is responsible for? other than the sort of the tacit responsibility of being in charge of the whole shebang, and therefore the buck stops here. Like, which of the things that happened in this game were Brandon Staley's fault? Look, I, I, I put a tweet out there just to offset the, the overreaction. Sometimes I just like to underreact while everybody's overreacting, right? Um, I, do, I do think Staley deserves some blame, right? And the responses to this were like half the people like, thank you for not trashing Brandon Staley only, and then other people like, you idiot. Of course it's his fault. Mm. I mean, the two biggest things are, it was his defense that didn't adjust and eventually gave up 31. It was his defense, right? It's his side of the ball. And the other one is, well, Mike Williams would have helped. Yeah. I that... think those are, those are the most fair things. I do think, like, tactically, within the course of the game, Doug Peterson, as a coach, won this game more than Staley lost it. Yes. Within the course of a game, in-game tactics – Doug Peterson won it more than Staley lost it. Unless you want to give Staley full blame for his defense collapsed, right? But it was more Peterson won it than Staley lost it. The two biggest things you would blame Staley for are Mike Williams wasn't out there. How much would have that affected things? And it was his defense, right? But like I said, he didn't miss the open throw. Like He didn't miss the open throw to Keenan Allen. It was wide open. He didn't miss the field goal. Those two plays changed the game. People are still like, Staley, you idiot, you almost blew it. But nobody's like calling for his head today because they eventually lost. Yeah, and, and even, okay, did the defense give up a lot and collapse? Yes. On the other hand, they only, quote-unquote, gave up 24 points in the second half. The bigger problem is that the offense didn't score. The offense scored three in the second half. So, to me, like, which of those two things is more egregious, an offense scoring three points in a half or a defense giving up 24 to a good offense uh, to me the bigger problem of those two things is the offense not scoring which is not his side of the ball i mean so, offense coordinator joel lombardi gets plenty of hate too there's there right. are good so if you're like look again which is like what is his fault like the fact that the offense basically didn't score again in the second half to me is a bigger fault in this which is not brandon staley's side now was this the offense just didn't execute like the the missing of keenan allen was this I mean, Austin Eckler had five rush attempts in the second half when they had this 20, you know, three-score lead to start the second half. That feels like an, um, an imbalance. Um, like, the offense not scoring is, a to me, a bigger problem than what happened on defense. Any blame for Justin Herbert in this whole thing? Um, I mean, he didn't play well, I don't think. And... Anytime you are to me, look, I the reclaim the comparison thing. I feel in a similar situation with Justin Herbert that I feel with Kenny Pickett, which is he is playing better 
then the offense gives him the ability to play. And therefore, his numbers a lot of the times look worse than they should, given what he's capable of doing and what he does generally. But I don't know if he is contributing to that collective failure of the offensive scheme. Um, Because, again, like, he should, for a guy as talented and as capable of spectacular plays as he is, he should not be the back to back reigning champion in turnover worthy play rate. He just shouldn't. The, that guy should not have, he should not be the most risk averse quarterback in the NFL. He just shouldn't be. So for that to happen two years in a row, I don't think that's just the system. That has to be him playing some part of that. Yeah. I mean, it's three, it's two systems in three years. And he's been, I mentioned the average depth of target stat. He's under seven now this year. He's under eight for his career. He's in the sevens, right, for, the, for his career, seven and a half. I mean, that, two different systems, man. Like, is it, how much of it is, is Herbert? For perspective, average depth of target for um, Alex Smith is exactly the same. Alex Smith's career is seven and a half. Herbert's career is, is seven and a half. And, and again, reclaim the comparison both low turnover worthy play guys low average depth of target and Herbert's big time throw percentage isn't as high as you would expect from a guy whose highlights are out of this world right so I still think Herbert's really good I do think there's a high level discussion that yes Justin does I don't know that I don't want to parse it as like Justin Herbert deserves better but certainly the results with Justin Herbert under center could be better it's also way better than it was his rookie season when Anthony Lynn was the head coach, it's gotten yeah. better. Are, are there better plays to make offensively and you know, better decisions to be made? Absolutely, I'm sure there are. Like to me, this is the classic example of, you know, we, so it sounded like, like the Jets fired um, Mike LaFleur. Mike LaFleur, yeah. Uh, the Jets fired Mike LaFleur. It sounded like for the billionaire reason that we talked about before, which is we didn't get where we wanted to be this season. Therefore, somebody has to be fired. Fire someone. I don't make the rules. This is just the way it works. If you don't achieve what we set out to achieve, somebody's head has to swing for this. So, you know, you decide who it is, right? I don't care. I just want somebody fired. That's how this works. I'm a billionaire. This is how it works. Uh, It sounded like that's why Mike LaFleur was fired. And it sounded also like um, Robert Sala was not on board with that as an outcome. But that's the way a lot of billionaires tend to think. This, to me, the Chargers now, is a classic example of it would be very easy to determine at the end of this, well, we didn't, we didn't execute this. We failed. We, the collapse happened. Therefore, Brandon Staley gets fired. I don't make the rules. This is just how it is. Fire him. Next. This is a classic example of things generally for the Chargers, I think, are moving in the right direction. Now let's sit down and address collectively where we went wrong and what we can fix going forward. And if Brandon Staley does that, I think you will find several instances where he could have been better personally and where things could have been better and they can improve. Amongst them is, let's try and find an offensive mind that makes this thing work and better with Justin Herbert there. And I understand that's a lot of turnover in a short period of time for Justin Herbert. On the other hand, part of that is just, this is the NFL, it's going to happen. You might as well try and get better as opposed to just sticking with what's not working for the sake of continuity. But if he does that, if he learns from the, hey, maybe don't risk our, my injury-prone star receiver that brings something unique to the offense in a game that doesn't matter in Week 18, you know, there's a bunch of things that I think they can do better next year 
you could argue he should have already known that, but what the hell? I still think it's a net win to keep him and everybody and to keep him in charge as long as that process happens. You know, as long as he actually does, let's go away, self-scout, figure out where the problems were and make some changes as opposed to I mean, we were nearly there and we just got unlucky. Let's just keep going. You know, that that's not good process either. I did see somebody tweet through it. I forget who it was. I apologize. But basically saying, cover the Chargers for years. I don't think they fire Staley. I don't think they make this power move for Sean Payton. They don't want to give up the draft capital. They're right. already low in draft capital. They'll they'll make changes. They're also not in the same world as They're not throwing, a couple of the teams that are going to put like monster yes. money in his They're direction. not going to throw crazy money at Sean right. Payton. Um, even though that's the team that Saints fans were eyeing the entire time, right? Like he was a lot of, you know, where would Sean Payton want to go? He wants Herbert. He would want Herbert, right? right? There are other opportunities now, though, for um, for Payton. All right, two more things really quick. As I tried to tactically tweet through Brandon Staley's not completely to blame, the other thing people said, well, he didn't run the ball, right? When teams collapse, mm-hmm. that's the other thing, too. When they collapse, they didn't run the ball enough. They only ran the ball eight times in the second half, whatever it was. True. They were averaging 2.8 yards per carry with their two running backs, with Austin Eckler and Josh Kelly. I mean, they were not going anywhere. And you throw short enough that your passes should be safe enough that you're keeping the clock going anyway. So I don't know if the run game was – not running the ball effectively, I do think is an issue, right? Like if you can't run the ball effectively when you're up two or three scores, that is an issue. But not just like the fact that he didn't like balance the offense and, you know, double your rushes just, you know, to nowhere – that's not the reason the Chargers lost. Yeah, I mean, you could also, say running effectively, not running a, uh, not enough. Yeah, you also have to look at the sort of game flow situations for these, right? Because it's always dependent on what the drive looks like. Like very first drive or very first play of the third quarter. So 27-7, the Jags just got that touchdown, but now the Chargers get the ball to start the third quarter. Play number one, Austin Eckler loses four yards. So you're like, all right, well, that's not – that's not starting the drive off in a particularly useful situation, you know, in a fo- best foot forward type of way. Um, like they just, they weren't getting anything going. Like the la- the next time they ran a run play, uh, following drive, um, they lost a yard again. Like every time they tried to get a run going, they didn't go anywhere. In fact, they lost yardage and all of a sudden they're behind the eight ball and they're going, they're crapping out on these drives and putting themselves in bad situations where you kind of have to pass. So, I, I, yes, in an ideal world, you want to be able to run the ball more and chew time off the, the clock and all those kinds of things. On the other hand, the drives have to function for that to happen. All right, last thing. The key play in the game. Jaguars are driving. We know a field goal can win it. They get to third and one with a minute 30 left. Come out of, They come out in the gun, and uh, Trevor Lawrence throws an incompletion to Christian Kirk, just misses him, right? Um, that looked scary for the Jags comeback, right? They, they go through this whole thing, third and one, on the 41, right outside field goal range. They get in the gun and throw it incomplete. It's like, uh-oh, now we're down to our last play. It's fourth and one with a minute 27 left. Jags have all three timeouts. They get under center. They line up. Doug Peterson calls timeout. It's This gives the Jags only two timeouts, right? Which means if they don't get this play, this game's over, right? The Chargers can kneel it out. You don't have three timeouts to stop it. This play better work. And they get in their QB sneak formation, right? They tighten it up, a little T formation in the back. Are we going to push them? What are we going to do? And they run the outside, the sweep to Travis Etienne mm. or Etienne for you. And they get 25 yards Yes, on it. Masterful play drawn up. This, like, this goes back to this whole, I think every team 
should have an entire QB sneak package, right? An entire formation or two where you tighten it up and your options are A gap sneak, B gap sneak, some sort of wide run to either way, right? You should be able to get to the line and say, here's the defensive front. I have an answer for it. You have to have an answer for everything. And the Jags had an answer in this one, right? They get up there, they run ETN wide. He outruns everybody 25 yards. And uh, that put them in field goal range and essentially sealed the deal for the Jags. Yeah, Ben Solak from The Ringer had a good video breakdown of this, that in two games this season, the Chargers on short yardage, or the Jags on short yardage have essentially dialed up a play specifically designed to make uh, Asante Samuel Jr. make a tackle in space for no yardage. Um, and both times, he's not been able to do it. In fact, both times, he's spectacularly failed to do it and turn not just a gain, into a massive play. Um, and this was a perfect example where the entire formation was designed to make Asante Samuel Jr. Uh, replace on the outside. His receiver is going to come in, crack the safety. All he has to do is step down then and make a one-on-one -on -one tackle in space with uh, against Travis Etienne. Uh, and if he doesn't do that, it's a first down. The game's uh, legit for, for Jacksonville. And... You know, he does a good – he reads it fine. Like, he ends up reading very early that Zay Jones is not a factor. He's not going to run a route. He doesn't have to cover him man-to-man. -man. He steps down, and what really makes the play is the alignment of Etienne. He's lined up to the left of this three-headed monster in the backfield, which means from the very moment of the handoff, he is running full acceleration horizontally to the right, into the direction that the Sante Samuel is coming from, and Samuel is sort of stepping down in the direction of Zay Jones in the opposite direction. So even though he reads it quite early and he, he's broken down, he, he's not off balance or anything, he just can't reroute in time to chase down a back as fast as at the end and make the stop behind the line of scrimmage. Now, I would say most cornerbacks do a significantly better job than Samuel did of stopping that for at least some kind of gain. A guy like Jalen Ramsey, as good as he is, probably makes the play. But you Sam, also don't run that play out of Jalen. You don't try right. to isolate Jalen Ramsey exactly. one on one. But like you know, Ramsey probably makes the stop, and it's a turnover. Uh, a, a normal corner probably makes the tackle for a couple of yard gain. Samuel gets run the hell right around, and it ends up being a big play. Oh man, we're an hour and fifteen minutes in. We got through Saturday, right? That's it. Jags win. They're going to go to Kansas City. I still feel like there's more to talk about. How do, I, how do I feel like we haven't covered everything? We haven't covered every single angle. We just don't have enough time. That's why we're adding shows. Yeah. But I first want to tell you about the easiest and most fun way to spice up the playoff football season. It's Underdog Fantasy in their Pick'em game. Just look for your favorite or least favorite player stats. Pick whether you think they'll end up with a higher or lower total than that number in this week's game. And you can win up to 20 times your money in a single night. Underdog keeps it super simple with their easy-to-use website and mobile apps. Pick between two and five players for your pick entry, get all your picks right, and you'll take home some cold, hard cash. It's simple to get started. Just head to underdogfantasy.com or download the app. Sign up with promo code PFF, and Underdog will double your first deposit up to $100. That's Underdog Fantasy, promo code PFF. Get in on the action today. Let's get to Sunday. Buffalo Bills 34, Miami Dolphins 31. We might not go for 45 minutes on the next three games each. Mm. We, we might not. But the Saturday one, I thought there was a, there was a lot to discuss with um, two, two teams with you know, high-end quarterbacks and, and where they're going. 
Um, but Buffalo 34-31. Miami made it a game, man. It was 17-0. It looked like the blowout that we had all expected, the two-verse-seven seed and the whole thing. Skylar Thompson certainly can't make this comeback, but they did in part because Buffalo kept turning the ball over. Or Miami forced turnovers, depending on your perspective. Yeah. But um, Buffalo was just too good in the end. They were. And, it, yes, you can, you can always debate which is the driving force, the defense forcing a turnover or the offense creating a turnover. This felt like the same Josh Allen we've seen all the way through the season, which was every now and again he just decides to make a random bad play and, t- like, toss the ball to the defense. He's been doing it all season long. That's why he leads the league in interceptions and turnover-worthy plays, right, or at least right up there. Um and he decided to do that a couple of times in this game. And it was funny, before there was a report, maybe from Jeff Darlington, I apologize if I'm getting that wrong, but before the game, it was sort of like, be prepared for crazy stuff from this Miami offense. Like, they understand how big an underdog they are. They understand how big a hole they're in without Tua and without Teddy Bridgewater. Um, and they are going to start dialing up madness on offense. And you're like outstanding yes. i am absolutely here for that tyreek hill running the wildcat like whatever it takes i am 100 percent endorsing that game plan and they really didn't like there was not an awful lot of craziness they just ran the offense with skylar thompson and what was weird is early in the game specifically like his receivers were just screwing him yeah Jalen Waddle. I think the badness was just they were throwing down the field, right? They were Maybe. just they were taking those chances. Waddle had two big opportunities. It's like, look, Skylar Thompson, in the balance of who is going to let who down in this offense, Skylar Thompson is absolutely going to let the receivers down more than the receivers let him down. But with that starting point, you kind of have to be at the top of your game if you're the wide receivers. You can't add to the lack of efficiency that's going to be there already because Skylar Thompson is the quarterback. If he gives you a chance, you've got to make those plays. And they didn't all the way through this game. Waddle in particular had a few nightmare plays. Tyreek Hill had another one where he almost turned it into an interception. Like the, the, the strength of this offense is those two wide receivers and the special ability they bring. And they just didn't, they didn't show up in this game, which really didn't help. Yeah, it's going to be interesting when we get into the Bills-Bengals game for next week because both teams were heavy favorites and neither team won easily, right? They, they both played really tight games. You could make the argument that Bills showed more flaws, you know, depending on how you look at it. Josh Allen, was this his most volatile game of all time? I mean, we're talking Josh Allen is – this is the full jo- – the Josh Allen experience shows up almost every week, but this was like on steroids, wasn't it? Big time throws left and right to the point, like early in the game, he just goes, let's hit Stephon Diggs on a, on a, on a go route perfectly in stride. Which had been there, like they already, they'd already missed one at that point. Yeah. Oh, he was, I got some stats. I got some stats. I'm actually looking to see where his overall game ranks historically, if I could pull this up. I got some stats in a minute on Josh Allen, but big time throws all over the place. He goes back-to-back plays where it's like Stephon Diggs, 50-yard bomb, and then I'm just going to roll out throw a, a seed right past the DB's head. Dawson Knox makes a great one-handed catch, but that pass should never even be there. Josh Allen, in a in a millisecond, just, boom, puts touchdowns on the board. And then he also puts touchdowns on the board for the Dolphins, gets, you know, strip-sacked, touchdown return. The Dolphins actually took the lead in the second quarter, or in the second half, um, on the strip-sack there by Allen. So 
He also, on the first drive, just dropped the ball when he was running, and the, you know, luckily it went out of bounds. He threw an interception to Xavier Howard. There was an unlucky interception in there as well. But either way, talk about the aggressive game plan. This was Buffalo. He was chucking it down the field. He was putting the ball in harm's way. But, um, yeah, this may have been the very most volatile performance of Allen's career. Seven big-time throws in this game as yes. of right now where the, the – the number is not finalized, but that would be the most in a single game this season, topping his previous most in a single game this season. Like, Josh Allen is the guy that is going to get you an absolute ton of big plays. On the other hand, we've also got three turnover-worthy plays in there, which has been Josh Allen this season. Like, he's become this, like, supercharged Jameis Winston version of madness on either end of the scale. Um, and obviously, the the baseline of that is significantly higher than we've seen from Jameis but he's almost putting together that like crazy Jameis season where it's just supercharged extremes on either side of this thing and what was crazy to me in this game is that so to me this game felt way more like Buffalo is a much better team we know that that's why the line is where it is going into this the idea of Josh Allen versus Skylar Thompson like Miami averaged like 3.3 yards per play or something it's not like their offense did anything it's just that Buffalo kept giving them a chance. And then every now and again, the Bills would kind of catch rhythm for a little bit and put up 10, 14 points in a couple of minutes. And then it would just stop happening again. But it was like, there didn't seem to be any game plan here. It was just, well, what's happen what happens if we just let Josh Allen go out there and do whatever the hell he wants to do and see what happens? And it was like, madness <laughs> just my, insane deep shots everywhere like every now and again Josh Allen would take over and run and do something crazy but it was this was this didn't look like a functioning game plan it was just like what happens if we just go out there and play off the cuff he okay yeah I mean it was fun man it was like it's the playoffs man I'm taking over I'm Josh yeah, Allen I'm but taking usually over. that happens when like you know, either you're in a hole and you need him to make something special happen or the team generally isn't as good and you just need him to – it needs to be Josh Allen Superman time. But this didn't need to be that. It's like they felt that way anyway and just let it happen. So Allen finishes the game with an average target depth, average depth of target of 16.1. That's which, nuts. Which is – 10 is a high number. 16 is ridiculous. Trying to add some perspective to this whole thing. That was more than Justin Herbert and Trevor Lawrence combined, right? So the average pass went, you know, just double essentially what they were doing. It's double the league average, which is around eight, eight and a half, right? It's, it's about it's about double the league average. It is the it's the highest figure in a single game this season. Um, I went back to 2018 as, as I'm as I'm going back, and I took games of 35. There were a few games with like lower pass attempts, whatever. 35 plus attempts. It's a yard uh, higher than any other quarterback. We have Allen in this game. We have Zach Wilson this year mm -hmm. in week 15 against the Lions at 15. We have Aaron Rodgers at 14.4 back in 2019. And you get Jameis at 14 back in 2019. You have a bunch of uh, Jameis. Well, you've also got Jameis has four of the top 10 here, yes. by the way. You've also got – so it's interesting where you draw the line in terms of dropbacks because if you – set it low enough you get a bunch of Marcus Mariota games this week this year for the Falcons where he had incredibly low numbers of dropbacks but a massively high average depth of target oh yeah when he's running the Navy offense that's right. how they do it right every pass is is down but, the field and then this year Josh Allen also has three more games of reasonably high like 14 
yards per attempt. But so like, th- this, this is supercharged again. This is my favorite part. So I, I'm like, I'm watching the game. I'm like, this is insane. Let me look it up. And I, I find the stat. I'm like, all right, his, his average depth of target is like 15. Um, and usually after like a screen pass, a little check down, offsets like two or three check downs and pulls this number way down, mm-hmm. right? Then you get into the fourth quarter. The Bills have a lead and his average depth of target goes to 26. It got higher. After this, after the game, he was like, no, I'm, I'm trying to score a touchdown here. We're not running the clock out. I'm not taking the five-yard gain. I'm chucking it down the field. And that was actually part of the reason why the Dolphins had opportunities at the end is Allen's like, man, I want to score 50. We're sitting here at 34. Last year, I scored you know, 47 in the wild car round. Let's get to 50. So he kept chucking it down the field. They you know, go three and out, give the Dolphins the ball back. The Dolphins had these opportunities late in the game. It was just unbelievable. Allen didn't try to take over the game from a running perspective either. It was just the aggressiveness was incredible. And I'm not even, you know, commentating on whether this was good, bad, or indifferent or whatever. It was just fascinating to watch. And I really think it's part of Allen's mentality, right? Like, it's it's the playoffs, man. I'm going to do it. And we'll talk yeah. about Cousins later. Cousin, Kirk Cousins had been so good in comeback opportunities, and the Vikings kind of went the opposite. They kind of like went into a shell down the stretch when they were losing. Allen's like, man, I am going to win this game. I'm going to finish this game with a dagger shot. They never hit it, but he was aggressive the whole way through. Yeah, but isn't this like – this feels like the folly of that mentality of like, yeah, look, at some point the fact that you have Josh Allen is an incredible – trump card to anything a defense can throw at you because when you really need him he can do some pretty incredible things and pull you out of a hole that not many other quarterbacks can on the other hand if you're just better than the opposing team if you just ran the offense normally you probably don't need any of that to happen right so this felt this felt like a situation where ken dorsey the offense coordinator has got a ton of credit this year for like all that's happening needs to find some way of reining Allen back in and saying, chill. Like, dude, we've got this. Just settle down, run what I'm calling, and we win this game by 25. Like, I don't need you to pull us out of the fire. I just need you to take the plays that are there. And it's like from play one, for some reason, they were just in this world of, well, Allen's got to make crazy plays, otherwise nothing functions. And the entire thing, now, to an extent – Early in the game, Miami was coming after him with major cover zero blitzes, you know, rushing, sending everybody. And it's like, well, that's not going to work if Stephon Diggs is going to roast Xavier Howard one-on-one every time Diggs they're lined was up. crushing Howard right. in this game. So to an extent, it's almost like, not even deliberately, but it's almost like Miami kind of started this by leaving that wide open early every play. So Allen now is in that mode, right? Right from the get-go, he's like, oh, this is going to be one of these games where they're going to send the house, and I'm just going to drop a bomb over the top of it every single play. But then he never got out of that. When Miami kind of backed off a little bit, realizing how badly they were getting toasted, and they started to mix it up more, Allen was still in that zone and never pulled himself back and said, all right, let's take a beat now. Now we can start taking some shorter stuff over the middle. It's like he just spent the entire game going YOLO deep down the field. I, I didn't realize it until I was watching the game more specifically, but Josh Allen and Xavier Howard being in the same division, I mean, that is just peak volatility back and forth, right? Xavier Howard coming out of uh, the Big 12 and then 
basically in the NFL, the guy that's going to have nine interceptions one year and then get, you know, but still give up, you know, get torched, you know, deep and all that stuff. We saw the full Josh Allen experience. We saw the full Xavier Howard experience in this game as well. I mean, you can't cover Stephon Diggs down the field that effectively. It's not easy, but um, I mean, this game too, I, I don't want to, I don't, the Bills lost. I mean, they win, but you, you feel like, oh, you know, they should have, should have dominated the Dolphins or whatever. The Dolphins kept, they kept chipping away, kicking field goals. And, you know, this is the longest game. It was like a college oh, game, God. four hour game. Like the, the first half was taking forever, but the Dolphins just kept getting more possessions, more possessions, kicking field goals and the whole thing. But the Bills were talking about what Diggs had a one hander that was just barely Inches incomplete. Yeah. It was it Dawson Knox in the end zone who, drops well, well yeah with the ball how many how many just missed catches were there in this a game and how many catch no catch discussions Kudo were had here in this game bomb ben, and Shakir, oh, no no he doesn't yeah so that's the other part of it Allen had those seven big time throws three of the uh, two of them were incomplete and there's another touchdown left on the table right yeah so the bills easily could have had 50 points right they could have had them right they sure. played for 50 and they landed at 34 but they also let the Dolphins back into the game because this volatile style also leads to some fumbles and some interceptions and right. the whole thing. So I think overall it worked for Buffalo. And if they try this again against Cincinnati, they'll still probably put up 30 points, right? But it's like, all right, you just you want to be a little careful. You don't want to turn the ball over as often as they did. I also, by the way, can I – I love – so Allen throws an interception and then on during the return, Christian Wilkins – kind of takes a shot at Josh Allen, you know, gets the sort of, oh, it's a turnover. I get to shove the quarterback thing. Josh Allen basically starts a fight with a nose tackle after getting shoved. I, I love that. I don't care if it was silly, if it was risky, if it was, you know, ill-disciplined. The fact that he was perfectly prepared to mix it up with the 300-plus pound nose tackle after an interception is amazing. It, it's hard to not actually love Josh Allen after after all we went through. Yeah. You know, it's a love story now. It's just a, that that I am I'm on board. I don't care anything else. The fact that he was perfectly prepared to throw down with a nose tackle during the play is amazing to me. I mean, look, Mahomes makes all these special plays and all that stuff, but at the end of the day, like Mahomes' special plays are like a little. Oh, he flicked he flicked his wrist with a little four yarder, right? Josh Allen's plays are fifty yards. Everything's going to be fifty yards. Mm. Everything's going down the field. There's uh, he's he's must watch TV for three sometimes four and a half hours. Yeah, like in this game, um, another it thing. was unbelievable. Just the whole the whole Allen game, um, really quick by the way, because I was like, hey, he's leading the league in turnover worthy plays, and somebody's like, oh, he's still your highest graded quarterback. There's other plays. That's how good Josh Allen yeah. is to make up for leading the league in turnover worthy plays to still grade as well as he does because he adds value in all of these other areas, both as a runner and as a passer, usually with big yeah, time Yeah, I mean, throws. overall, he was good in this game. Yes. Um, the only point being, the only reason this game was as close as it was is because of mistakes from the Bills' offense, generally. Um, and those mistakes, I think, happened because of this hyper-aggressive game plan that I don't think needed to exist. Um, and whether or not they were sort of baited into that, deliberately or otherwise, by Miami's own hyper-aggressive defensive game plan, it felt like there was absolutely a time in this game where somebody had to rein this in, and it never happened. And because they just kept on swinging for the fences, they ended up letting Miami back into this game, and it was way closer than it should have been. Um, 
two more things that I think we need to cover. Number one, it was a, f- a phenomenal part of this game where Tony Romo on commentary began to try and explain that Skylar Thompson wasn't actually playing that badly. And then while he was making the statement, reminded himself of all the reasons that wasn't <laughs> true. That's like, actually, Skylar's not playing that bad, except for that one really bad interception. And sure, he's one for seven right now, but the interception, or but one of those plays was a little bit unlucky. So really, he should be two for seven. And actually, okay. <laughs> he's trying to make the point that he put the ball in Jalen Waddle. He put the right. ball on his receivers a couple times, and that could have yeah. been caught. They weren't pure drops necessarily. They were, you know, knocked away at the catch point, and whatever okay, it was. But one of those was five yards underthrown. But but still. Um, Catchable passes. But then the other thing is, because just like Brandon Staley's taking a ton of crap, um, Mike McDaniel's taking a ton of crap because for some reason late in the game, the offense was just incapable of running a play without like a delay a game penalty running. Oh, man. Like burning, they burned two timeouts on third and 10. Hmm. So, <clears throat> again, at that point, part of the equation is Skylar Thompson's my quarterback. Yes. And there's no game plan for him to just like pick a defense apart on third and 10, you know, when Allen has third and 10 or Mahomes or these guys, it's like, you might call a timeout, save the extra five yards. But at some point that second half timeout in a tight game is more valuable than the five yards on a, on a low, like a 20% conversion down, maybe 10% with Skyler at at the helm. And they just couldn't even get the play calls in. They had to get the delay. And then they take the delay of game, man. They still couldn't get the play calls in. Skyler tried to take the blame for it after the game. I don't know, man. McDaniel was saying that somebody told him they thought they had the first down. So they didn't have a fourth and one play dialed up because they thought they converted on third and one. one. That's a mess if that's the case. Yes. And it was, he was, I mean, obviously it's somebody in his own staff. Like the, you know, the official didn't say. Yeah, it wasn't the, right, right. Right. So somebody told him we got the first down, we're good. So they were busy cooking up first and 10 not fourth and one and then once you realize oh crap this is fourth and one i mean you don't have the time anymore yeah so the dolphins thought they had a fourth and one they had to take a false start they, they had to take a delay of game because they didn't have any timeouts, timeouts left that's when you would want to use a timeout right as valuable as timeouts are fourth and one you obviously want that more right. than fourth and six that's that's worth it not save third and ten to get to third and 15 and then it's incomplete on fourth and six the game's over but um the other part that but that entire fourth quarter oh, that, that was it, bungling. Before the Bills ran it out. It was but. bungling timeouts and delay of game panel. Like, the whole thing was a mess. I prefer the high-level view. I mean, two, two, two perspectives here. Mike McDaniel was handed Tyree Kill, Jalen Waddle, right? I mean, you've got, you've got this incredible offense. Um, at the same time, high-level, the Dolphins made the playoffs in his first year. He turned Tua into a very good NFL, one of the most productive NFL quarterbacks this year before he gets hurt. He found the best way to use Tyree Kill and Jalen Waddle and all that speed on offense. Like, I want that on my team. Um, I mean, Kyle Shanahan's dealt with this too, Sam. There are people questioning Kyle Shanahan because he doesn't, doesn't have the best fourth down decisions and, you know, timeouts and this and that or whatever. Kyle Shanahan's value on 65, 70 plays per game are far more important. His contribution to the offense that is 70 plays yeah. is far more important than a little bit of clock. I mean, not a little bit. Clock management's important. But the offensive coordinator being a cheat code is far more important than clock management and some other 
stuff that they have to deal with, right? Not that that stuff's not important, but you get to directly affect the offense for 65, 70 plays. I'm not saying Mike McDaniel's right at Kyle Shanahan's level yet, but he might be. I'm not losing that. Like, don't let Mike McDaniel leave the building because he couldn't pull the upset with Skylar Thompson in Buffalo. The fact that we're even talking about this as a game after it was 17 to nothing and it, you know, it's basically a double digit spread is incredible. It was a good season for Mike McDaniel in Miami, all things considered. Absolutely. With I mean, things to improve at the end, right? You get better at communication, get better at some of this stuff. The other thing is. But his value is the offense, and that will remain. This offense with Tua at quarterback was second and marginally second, just behind Kansas City in EPA per play, right? When it had Teddy and Skyler at quarterback, it was 30th. So the enti- this offense goes from being essentially as good as anything in the NFL with Tua at quarterback to being dead-ass last, basically, with anybody else. Um, now, do you look at what Shanahan is doing and say, well, that's a failure of coaching? Or do you say, look, at some point you actually need a viable quarterback and let's focus way more on what the guy can do when he has his quarterback? Which it's not like, you know, we're not thinking Tua is Mahomes, Josh Allen. Like, we don't think Tua is one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL, generally, right? So what we're saying is if you give this guy a functional, pretty good quarterback, he can create the best offense in the NFL. And if he doesn't have that, he can. That's way more important than can he do what Shanahan is doing and make miracles happen with anybody. Like That's the thing. Focus on the fact that with everything in place, this guy has the arguably the best offense in the league. Um, now, when you get to the, the fourth quarter, generally, of this game and the, the lack of being able to function, I, I think it's, again, the, the sort of self-scouting process. Like, they should be going away and saying, all right, why did that fail? And from the outside, it's impossible to know. Is that a failure of uh, Mike McDaniel, or is that, like, at some point, the fact that Skylar Thompson is a seventh-round rookie who's barely played and hasn't really run the offense and has no experience doing this stuff? Like, is that him not being able to kind of run and, you know, run these situations because he hasn't had time to do it? Who knows? But that's a question for Miami to go away and figure out where that broke down, and let's make sure it doesn't happen going forward. But again, like, this billionaire world of we fail, therefore somebody's got to get fired? I No. Like, there's no reason. Like, just learn from why you fail and move forward. I mean, it's just like players, right? The player in year one might not look the same as they are in year two or three. When you're hiring a head coach, you're really not actually hiring him for X's and O's. If the, the handful of guys that bring an X and O advantage in the NFL, I think are extremely valuable as head coaches because they set this baseline. There aren't that many guys who have a consistent advantage in play calling. Shanahan's one of them. McDaniel might be one of them, right? There's only a handful of guys. Even Sean McVay. Like, Sean McVay can't make magic with everybody. We've seen that. You know, he might elevate a staffer, but there's not that many of those guys. You're really hiring a guy, though, that is a leader, is a CEO type, and all that stuff. And if you hired Mike McDaniel and said, he'll learn from mistakes, he'll do – like, that should be part of the process, right? Not only is he good at X's and O's, but the point is there should be room to grow – and you're going to evaluate that and, you know, try to grow next year. But the successful first year for Mike McDaniel. Yeah. They never should have been in this game. Um, if it was 40 to 10, I don't think anybody's even questioning McDaniel. It's like, of course you lost 40 to 10. Right. Like, what was the – it was like a 13-and-a-half-point spread, right? They weren't supposed to be anywhere. Um, yeah. Moment for Kyer Elam, who gets an interception off a crazy Skylar Thompson throw. Almost had a second one when Tyreek Hill – kind of tried to adjust to it, didn't quite get it right, and almost batted it to him. Um, Elam, 
remember, this is their first round rookie, 23rd overall selection, enters the season despite injuries behind fellow rookie Christian Benford on the depth chart, who's a what, sixth rounder? Sixth round, Villanova. Right. Yeah. So he's he goes from being much heralded first round selection, we think is going to be the starter, um, particularly with Tredavious White still injured, working his way back. And he's not even in the lineup because fellow six-rounder rookie has jumped him on the depth chart. Um, there's a ton of injuries all throughout this Buffalo secondary all through the year, so he kind of bounces in and out of the lineup, gets opportunities, never quite outperforms Benford necessarily. And you're like, well, as soon as everybody's healthy, he's getting bumped back off out of the starting lineup. But he ends up playing in this game uh, 42 snaps, gets himself an interception, a key, what turns out to be essentially a, a game-defining play, almost had a second one, just a, I don't want to say a redemption story because the dude's a first-round first pick. We expect him to be good, but like for, for it's been a rough rookie season for him given expectations, but that's a really nice uh, playoff debut. It's going to be fascinating. Bills play the Bengals next week, Sunday afternoon at 3. Um, the one last thing, Devin Singletary, an awesome game-clinching run, just running through the Dolphins' defense. Um the Bills need plays like that, right? You need, you know, James Cook broke free for a 13-yard touchdown. They need not again. They need to run the ball. It's they need, they need some plays where Josh Allen can take a break. Singletary also had a really nice day in pass protection. Like Miami's blitzes that they were dialing up, a lot of the times um, Buffalo had them picked up, and a lot of the times they did were because Devin, Devin Singletary had a guy and did not give up the pressure. And remember, Devin, Devin Singletary. Dude is tiny. He's like 5'7", barely yeah. 200 pounds. That's a pass-blocking advantage. <laughs> and he's picking up... Low man wins, man. Yeah, and he's picking up blitzers and stopping them. Leverage, baby. That's three games done. Sweet. The NFL play playoff action continues. Got it. We're one step closer to Super Bowl 57 in the NFL Divisional Round. you got to check out DraftKings Sportsbook an official sports betting partner of the NFL. New customers can bet just $5 and get 200 in free bets instantly. Plus, all new and existing customers can take a shot at an even bigger payout with DraftKings stepped-up same-game parlays. You boost your NFL winnings with each leg you add up to 100%. So download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code PFF. New customers can bet $5 on the NFL divisional round and get 200 in free bets instantly. Only at DraftKings Sportsbook with the code PFF. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See show notes for details. Giants 31, Vikings 24. Giants move on to play the Eagles next week in the divisional round. But, man, what a game. Defense, optional for most of the game, both sides of the ball. There was a lot of uh, busted coverages. There was just a lot of bad defense or good offense, depending on your perspective. Got to hand it to the Giants, man. They, they had answers for everything that – I mean, again, perspective – did the Vikings hand it to them? I don't know. But a lot of open throws, sure. But the Giants executed really well offensively. Daniel Jones, uh, very clean game passing the ball. Also goes 16 carries for 81 yards outside of – it was a 13 for 81 outside of Niels. Ran the ball extremely effectively both on in the design game and as a passer led the, lead, led the team – led the game with his official 78 rushing yards. Yeah, this is one of uh, Daniel Jones's best games of the season. Um, I think people are going a little bit overboard in, in how much credit. Reel him back him. in. Reel him back in because nobody's actually watched Daniel Jones this year. They just know that the Giants have won, and they just saw him play well yesterday against a bad defense. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think Daniel Jones has been spectacular this season, but this was a very good game from him. Um, 
like it, this has been the story though of Minnesota's defense all season. They have they're just not capable of stopping anybody. It was amazing. Um, you know, m- methodical opening drive from Minnesota. Like the the script went really well. They get a touchdown immediately. Their defense just craps itself, and the Giants score like an answer. Um, like for the first, that they were averaging like twenty yards per play for the first you know couple of drives. The the Giants. Minnesota's defense was just horrendous. And it's like at some point, the offense is not going to be able to dial up as many plays, particularly in the playoffs where it's not like you're not game planning every week of the NFL season, but there's more, you know, you're coming up with more creative things in the playoffs than you are during the regular season to try and stop specific units like the Vikings offense. So uh, Wink Martindale and the Giants defense had a different game plan this week than they certainly did the last time they played them. This was, I think, the lowest blitz rate that this defense has had all season long. We talked about that going into the game. Yeah. It was down at 25%. We didn't think game. they'd change, and, <coughs> and clearly they did. I mean, Dexter Lawrence was dominant up front. We'll right. talk about him in a minute. I'm, I'm curious to know, did Week Martindale and the Giants say, we're just going to mix it up. We just saw this team a couple of weeks ago. We're going to we're going to throw a little change up. We actually because they put a little extra focus on Justin Jefferson. They did steal a little bit from the Packers game plan as far as bracketing him and all that fun stuff. Or did they just say we're going to trust our front four? We know Dexter Lawrence is going to have real. He's going to be really effective against these this uh, offensive interior, uh, the interior offensive line of the of the Vikings. Did they say we're just going to trust Dexter Lawrence and uh, Leonard Williams and Kayvon Thibodeau to win? Um, it's not, it looked like they just trusted their front four, and they did all the way through. I was wondering if they were going to unleash the blitz in crunch time and, and start going for it, and they didn't. They really no. did trust the front for the most part. Whether or not they they were doing it specifically because they wanted to exploit a, a matchup advantage or dedicate extra resources to Justin Jefferson, or whether they simply did it because it's the exact opposite of what they did the last time, and it's like, you know, let's show them something different than they're expecting. Like last time, they blitzed Kirk Cousins – um, you know, more than 50% of his dropbacks. This time it was 25%, which is basically as low as this, uh, this defense is going to get. Um, as it happened, it didn't matter because Dexter Lawrence was just running through the interior of that Vikings offensive line pretty much every single play. Um, but also it meant that they could do more things to Justin Jefferson on the back end, and all of a sudden you've taken away the explosive plays that this Vikings offense has been living with all season long. They're number two or three in explosive passing plays all season, you're like, that's the reason the Vikings are winning this game. If you take those away and the Vikings have to just live with a regular offense, they're going to do reasonably well, but they're going to be stuck at 24 points. And if you can put up anything against this terrible Vikings defense, you win. And that's basically what happened. Like they did just enough to slow down this Vikings offense to just a normal level and they got enough joy because the Vikings' defense is horrendous. When you rush four that often, especially a, a wink defense that's used to sending five and six quite a bit, when you rush four that often, you shouldn't be getting about a 50% pressure rate either. This was like the Bills yeah. early in the season where we talked about the Bills never blitz and they're still one of the, have one of the highest pressure rates in the NFL. That's, that's a cheat code, right? That's a hope. Um, the Giants weren't exactly at that rate, but they were close, man. Dexter Lawrence bench pressing dudes back in the, in the back of the pocket. And that's why Cousins played a good game. Kirk Cousins played a good game. And you talk about taking away Minnesota's explosives and all that stuff. Even if Jefferson had time, I mean, Jefferson didn't have time to get open is the point, right? There were so many throws where 
Uh, Cousins just had to take the underneath completion because if he did wait beyond two 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 point one seconds, he was getting crushed. Including that fourth and th- uh, fourth In- and eight, where including he ends the fourth up going eight. for a three yard checkdown. It's like what kind of idiot play was that? Well, he had to get rid of the ball right then. Now, okay, if you had to get rid of it right then, you might as well take a shot somewhere deeper down the field. Sure, but he did get forced. Like that wasn't just. Kirk Cousins being the guy we criticized him for a couple of years ago, where it's like needs eight, wants three. Kirk Cousins had to get that ball out of his hands immediately again because Dexter Lawrence was right in his face again, or somebody was. Like Dex- the Vikings had Garrett Bradbury back for this game, and we saw the limitations of Garrett Bradbury, which is an undersized center. If he struggles, it's against giant nose tackles, and Dexter Lawrence this season is having a defensive player of the year caliber year. <clears throat> Dexter Lawrence just absolutely running through Garrett Bradbury. The, Lawrence this season has like by far the most pressure of anybody that lines up as a true like zero tech, a, a, no, a head up nose tackle, um, old school head up nose tackle. Like he's got like three times more pressure than anybody else from that alignment. So he had eight official <coughs> pressures, had another one that was negated, four QB hits. I mean, what also had that really bad roughing the passer on the last call on yeah, the last drive that was pretty rough. pretty bad call because if cousins didn't throw the ball while he was in the grasp it was just a sack right like he lawrence can't see that have he they clarified they, they've called they call it for the head contact right did they clarify that i don't there's know no so way. it was a a glancing blow to the head yeah right which even mike Pereira was like we wouldn't call that. Right. That's a glancing blow. When Mike Pereira is saying it's not a penalty. And then he spun him around. He did the whole, oh, he, he spiked him, right? And it's almost like, man, if you're a 210-pound quarterback, you're going to look like you're getting thrown like a rag doll. Like, that's well, that just, was like the Tua thing. It's like the advantage, right? Yeah. Like when you're a Tua or Cousins or this year's Brady who looks like he's like 15 pounds lighter than he was, you're going to get tossed around a little bit. It's going to look worse. Like nobody can do that to Josh Allen. And the thing is, he didn't throw him – when he spun him around – he didn't spin him into the ground, which you've seen he people do. He spun him on his on right. top of himself. He like spun him specifically to gently ease him to the turf. Like it's about like if that is the penalty, if that part of it is the penalty, there's nothing a defensive player can do because he put him down about as gently as it's possible to put him down given the circumstance. I think what it had to have been was the contact to the head, which, as you say, even Mike Pereira is like that's. It's just a glancing blow. It's nothing. And you needed the replay to see it. Like, when you look at the, the TV angle, even yeah. full speed, you can't see the hit to the head. It doesn't, it doesn't show up. You, even looking for it, it's impossible to see that that even happened. It's only in the replay. You're like, oh, yeah, this forearm does clip the face mask on the way through to contacting him. But, like, I don't know. That's an egregiously bad roughing the passer penalty to me. So Dexter Lawrence has a monster game. Leonard Williams had a very good game on the interior. It was impressive, man, by the Giants. They they Their zone coverage wasn't great, but they were just trying to eliminate those big plays, right? Cousins did a good job taking the underneath stuff. There was a bad coverage bust on uh, – you know, both of the touchdowns were a little – whatever. There was a bad coverage bust. Great job. Great, great scheme by the Vikings. Justin Jefferson's in the backfield. Attracts three Giants defenders. Leaves Irv Smith wide open. Um, I think the other touchdown – for Cousins, they may have gone away with a hold. Christian Darasaw against uh, Kayvon Thibodeau. Mm. But the Giants had a good game plan of, not that they were playing perfectly on the back end coverage-wise, but just trusting that front four to to essentially make the Vikings yeah. throw the I ball mean, look, underneath and earn big plays. A huge amount of credit to the Giants generally. I mean, this is 
the, the, the job that this coaching staff has done this season has been incredible. I mean, um, Brian Dayball is getting all the credit for the sort of offensive side of this, but let's give some credit to Wink Martindale as well because he, he sort of becomes this defensive caricature of just, oh, this, that's just the blitz guy. It's almost like Greg Williams, right? We're all anybody remembered about Greg Williams is a safety lined up on the moon and these crazy hyper-aggressive defenses that were at times suicidal. Like Wink Martindale has almost become that where we're like, oh, it's just the blitz guy. That's what he does. Just dials up the blitz, you know, and it's nuts. Um, but what he like his linebackers are Jalen Smith and Jared Davis. And there are plays where he's got like Jared Davis like walking out and covering the slot. You're like, okay. Jared Davis is not good in coverage. It looked like the Vikings uh, also knew that. Right. <laughs> were attacking like, this him quite is not, a bit. Like this is not a defense that should be functioning, let alone doing a reasonable job trying to cover the best receiver in the NFL and an offense is cooking reasonably well. Like the job that Wink Martindale is doing with the personnel that he has outside of Dexter Lawrence and a couple of individuals is insane. Yeah. So I, look, it's, it's not like the, the Giants didn't dominate defensively or anything like that. I mean, the Vikings had their way with, um, you know, a lot of the time, TJ Hawkinson, another huge game. We had, Talked about that, how the, the Giants don't cover tight ends very well. Hawkinson had a huge game in their last matchup. He goes for 10, 10 catches for 129. They couldn't cover any sort of anything that looked like a wheel route for a while, but um, they made the plays in the end. And I, I do think the Vikings, look, this is like, this is their home turf, man. Like, you mm. know, fourth quarter, one score game. This is, this is where we shine, right? This is what we've done all season. And in, in this year, we had talked about hey, Kirk Cousins didn't grade as well this year, but in those crunch time types of games, he, they made plays, right? He was aggressive. They, they, they found ways to put together game-winning drives, field goals, touchdowns, whatever they needed, they would go get it. And I thought that their last two drives, the second-to-last drive, they start with a screen pass where it's, it's not bad to start with a screen, right? It's not bad. Like a lot of, you know, let's just pick up some yards. Let's start the drive. It gets blown up by Darnay Holmes. Um, the second pass, I can't remember if it was a check down or a screen, but it's another like pass to nowhere for three yards. It did feel like the, the Vikings reverted back to just a little bit too conservative when they needed to score, right? They needed, to, they needed a, a must-have must drive in the fourth quarter that they'd gotten all season, right? And one perspective is, hey, it's lucky. You can't win every one-score game. You can't do this every single time. But the other perspective is they did play to the situation really well in Minnesota this year. And Cousins made that adjustment. The thing that we were very critical of on Cousins for years, he made some adjustments this year and was far more aggressive in those situations and came through when they needed him. It did feel like they reverted back just a little bit, too conservative, not just the three-yard pass on fourth and eight. Could he have made a better decision? Maybe. I mean, Skylar Thompson converted a four, fourth and six with a check down yesterday. You don't notice and, until the guy like, right. forces like the miss tackle. Like if Hawkinson breaks a tackle and yeah. turns that into 15 yards. It was a great tackle. It was a good play by the Giants, right? Um, so there's more than just that pass. But I do think the Vikings could have been a little bit more aggressive on those final two drives or just played better on well, the, the final two drives yeah. than they didn't. I mean, look, we, we know that um, the Giants were doing an awful lot to take away Justin Jefferson. On the other hand, like that isn't new, right? The idea that teams are dedicating extra resource to Justin Jefferson is not exactly revolutionary. For Justin Jefferson to get three targets in the second half of a close game, feels bad you know no matter what kind of coverage they were throwing his direction it feels like you need to give a player like that 
the chance to make a play. Like, remember the, the Bills game where Justin Jefferson, they won that game because Justin Jefferson came up with a bunch of miracle plays sequentially because you just gave him a shot. Like, just put it in the air, let him do something. So I think Cousins talked about on that fourth down play, he looked up, he didn't like the look that Jefferson was getting and went, you know, came off it, right? And when you look at it, sure, like they're going to bracket cover him. On the other hand, is that, like, is it more likely that Justin Jefferson goes up and mosses somebody and makes a play than it is Hawkinson beats a guy one-on-one, breaks a tackle and gains five more yards? I don't know, but if I'm, like, if, if you're, which one's more likely? I think given the track record, you probably want to give Justin Jefferson a shot. Yeah, let him go make the one-hander on fourth and 18. And if like it doesn't happen, fine. Like, you've, you've, you've earned the if other side of that variance. It doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter But, like, you, what you've happens. also, yeah. like, you've just, you've earned the other side of that coin already, right? Like, he's already made the, literally, arguably the greatest catch that's ever been made in the history of the game on fourth and 18 or whatever it was against Buffalo. So if it comes out the other side of that and somebody just makes a pass breakup, fine. Like that's the balance there. But the fact that he's already made that play to me should earn him another shot to try and make another one. On the other side of the ball, again, I want to give credit to the Giants, but I also think you know, every, it feels like every game, every game, they're calling for some coach to get fired. Mm. Every game, it's like Staley, got to get rid of him. McDaniel, get rid of him. Ed Donatel's the guy now. He's the he's the fall guy for Minnesota. Yeah, but this is the most um, justifiable one, I think. Like, I think there's reasons that the Chargers don't need to fire, certainly Brandon Staley. I think there's reasons that the Dolphins absolutely shouldn't fire Mike McDaniel. This Vikings defense has been hot garbage all season long, though. And in particular, it's been getting worse. Like, it's not like changes are being made. We're seeing incremental moves in the right direction. Like, this has been getting more bad as the season wears on. The Giants had 260-something yards in the first half. Like, they were, again, on pace for another historical monster day against this Vikings defense. The first half, they couldn't get anything going. Um, They had, like, the Giants have a terrible offensive line. The Vikings still weren't able to generate a ton of pressure. They were missing tackles. Like, this is a bad defense. Yeah, so it was bad defense by Minnesota. There were a lot of open throws. I mean, we're talking the deep crossing route, the over route was like uncoverable in the NFL, right? I mean, I, in my head, I was thinking if the Vikings win this game and the, they have to go to San Francisco next week, mm-hmm. they're going to give up 600 yards of offense, yeah. maybe 700. Because the same deep crosser that Seattle couldn't cover, the Niners are going to run it 15 times. When we saw what they did to Seattle. like Yeah. It would be a similar outcome. Yes. This is what I, it felt like. I, I mean, we are, we we are, we have been saved from the just atrocity that would have happened next week if this 49ers <laughs> offense had gone up against this Vikings defense. Like that would have been all-time record production and bloodbath occurring. So now I want to give, but I also want to give the Giants credit here. Daniel Jones, good game by him. So throwing the ball. Isaiah Hodgins leads the team with eight catches for 105. Just another incredible job by, by the uh, by the Giants because you know, Dayball was with the Bills when they drafted Hodgins in the sixth round. He did look like a pretty useful player coming out of Oregon State. There was no room for him in Buffalo, whatever. And here he is, you know, the, the leading receiver in the wild card round for the Giants. Darius Slayton, he was the one who had easy run through the defense for a 47 yarder. He also, right should have had the game clinching catch where he drops it on a shallow cross on third and long which he 
with his speed, he's outrunning yeah. Patrick Peterson for a first down. That was a huge play in the game. On a personal level, you have to be happy for him that that didn't cost them. Oh, man. It was, I mean, it was a perfect throw. It was an easy catch. He yeah. drops it. But Slayton's been so good for the Giants this year overall. Saquon Barkley, you know, say what you want about drafting a running back at two and all that stuff. The explosiveness that Barkley brings to this team from a run game perspective. Also in the pass game with 56 yards, he had a couple big plays there. Richie James working out of the slot. And they always scheme it up for Daniel Bellinger in the red zone. They had the little misdirection play. That's the other thing I love about the Giants and their coaching staff. As soon as they get into the red zone, they got plays dialed up. They had a Statue of Liberty in there. A lot of misdirection plays, end around. Like they have stuff in the red zone that they're trying because they don't have guys that are going to go win one-on-one, right? They know the Giants have essentially played the underdog role all season, right? They have played that role all season long where they've stolen yards. They've stolen possessions. They've stolen points, right? They went for two to win the game against the Titans way back in week one, right? They have, they have done a great job overall with um, just maximizing this roster. And I think just the way they play in the red zone and in, in some of the plays that they dialed up yesterday was a big part of that as well. Yeah, Saquon had a couple of really nice plays there. Um, his touchdown run, like he got hit, or one of his touchdown runs rather, he got hit by Dalvin Tomlinson, right? Like at the one yard line and just ran through the contact. That was like, impressive. For, we announcers are seemingly completely incapable of differentiating when like a running back is moving the pile versus when the four offensive linemen the plow in behind him are moving the pile just the way they're also completely incapable of differentiating a drop from a pass breakup but this was an occasion where the running back genuinely moved that like he ran in to dalvin tomlinson who's a good run stuffing defensive tackle and drove dalvin tomlinson back a yard plus into the end zone that was some serious power he also had the spin move I think on Harrison Smith to make him look ridiculous um, Saquon had a couple of really nice plays the other thing is the Vikings could not stop the Giants and Daniel Jones on well Daniel Jones period but also on on fourth and short and they got oh, on fourth and one that, situations yeah. twice I think the Giants easily picked it up both times so again you can have a bad defense if you show up for three straight plays basically you know one play the offense doesn't execute and then three plays you stop them and you can get them off the field it's all you need the vikings got the giants to the brink of that twice and didn't come close to stopping them on the sneak either time so fourth and one from the minnesota seven this is with 838 left in the game and it's tied yeah it's 24 24 now it was four i think it was inches to go right and not every fourth and one is the nah, same it was, like a, it was yeah was it a it full close. yard i forget it wasn't exactly. a full yard but it wasn't inches it was you know like a foot or whatever I mean, again, I, 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 I'm mad at myself for overreacting to, uh, to social media stuff because two hours, like an hour later, right, after this conversion, there are people in the Ravens game being like, come on, Harbaugh, take the points, take the points. I'm like, you just watched the Giants refuse the points and go for these fourth downs to win the game. You just watched this. The Giants directly won the game because on fourth and one, at the Minnesota 7, in a tie game with 8.38 left, they said, we don't want to go up 27 to 24. We're not going up three. We're going to sneak it. We're going to get the first down. Then we're going to score a touchdown and go up seven. That's what they did. And so that play partially won them the game. Then I mentioned the Vikings, uh, pretty bad drive coming out of that. They go four-yard loss, three-yard gain, incomplete pass. Giants get the ball back. They're driving down. And 
they have – I'm sorry, it was, it was at the end – it was uh, toward the end of the game. They had another fourth and one, right? Three and a half minutes left. So three, 328 left. The Giants in their own territory down seven. This was the one. Like, this was the Belichick in 2009 in his own territory, one play away from winning. This wasn't even one play away from winning. Right. That was, like, the biggest controversy back then. Fourth and one in your own territory. I don't think anybody batted an eye. Nobody was like, no. this is crazy. I don't know. Maybe some people thought this was crazy. I don't know. But you have to be good at QB sneaks. You have to be good at fourth and one in today's NFL. Easily converted it. Is, it. It's, I joke about, uh, hey, you know, getting pressure on a four-man rush. That's like a hope, not a strategy. Being good in fourth and sh- in short, in third and short, I do think is a strategy. I think you could be good at that. You could be really good at it. And the Giants were. They go for it fourth and one in their own territory, up seven, and they get it. And that was a big part. They didn't score that drive. They still had to punt, but it took more time off the clock, and it forced Minnesota to take timeouts, and it was a big part of their win. I don't know if it would have made any difference, but Kevin O'Connell got screwed out of a timeout before that play. Like he was they, – they, they ran the play. You, they showed a replay. O'Connell is right in the official's face on the sideline, like calling for a timeout because they were trying to – they had a 12th man on the field for some reason, which, you know, is its own failure. I thought but, they gave him the timeout. I was, I no, was, I wasn't didn't. hearing the broadcast. I didn't know exactly so what happened. There. there was a 12th guy running off the field, whether it was that or whether it was O'Connell just didn't like the defensive look they were in. He tried to call timeout and they didn't give it to him and obviously gave up the first down. I don't know if the timeout would have made any difference, but the fact that he didn't get that, like that's standard officiating practice. For some reason, O'Connell wasn't given the timeout there. We're two hours in, man. Well, this is good. We've, we've done well. This is fun, though. This is fun going through all this stuff. What else do you want to add on this game? Anything else? No, I'm out on that game. Are you done? Yeah. We're done with this one. I got nothing. I'm just glad we don't have to do like a Falcons-Panthers recap or anything this week. Beautiful. It's all playoff games. So impressive job by the Giants. They get to go to Philadelphia next week on Saturday night. All right, last game of the week. Cincinnati 24, Baltimore 17. Another game that... You know, blowout on paper, backup quarterback, but the Ravens hung tough. And it was another one, too, where the favorite got up early, right? When Buffalo is up 17 to nothing, it's like, of course, of course they are. Yeah. When Cincinnati is up 9 nothing, it should have been 10. You know, missed the extra point. It's like, of course they are. But the Ravens came back, right? 17 play, 75 yard, big boy drive. And they didn't take the point, Sam. They took the seven points instead of the three because they went for it on fourth and one, and it was smart because you're the Ravens, you're the underdog, you have Tyler Huntley, and who knows if you're going to get back into scoring range again. So the Ravens, you know, they hung tough with their, you know, taking 10 minutes off the clock types of drives. Um, But in the end, one of the craziest plays in NFL playoff history, Tyler Huntley fumbles on the QB sneak. The ball lands in Sam Hubbard's hands, who runs 98 yards for the longest Fumble return for a touchdown in NFL playoff history. That was the deciding touchdown in this game. Yeah, I mean, just jumping ahead to that wild play and so many people to credit on that play from the the defense. Like, okay, again, you can all, you always start with to what extent did the offense or to what extent did the other side of the ball let this happen? Like what Tyler Huntley was doing, trying to leap over the top from that distance is its own thing. They lined up for double cheek push they had two guys behind him ready to drive him into the end zone i think one of them was um the patrick ricard right the fullback the 300 pound fullback so you're lining up with quite a lot of power ready to double cheek push the dude over the line if i'm right there um but the one thing you don't do with a mall 
is go high, low man wins. That's yeah. the same the world over. So get low, allow the power to drive you over and get the, the distance that way. Instead, he decides to go high, jump over the top, and multiple Bengals defenders did a great job. Um, Jermaine Pratt was the guy that met him when he went up top, sort of basically stalled his progress, and that allowed Logan Wilson to then target the ball, like basically slap two hands right on the ball rather than going for a Huntley. Um, some combination of Wilson and Pratt ended up sort of forcing it out. Then obviously um, he's uh, Sam Hubbard's able to pick it up, start rumbling. A couple of guys ran with him the whole way, like Mark Andrews was going to chase him down, was going to get that done. Marcus Bailey was the guy that ends up getting a block on him, a block which was very much in the bank, by the way. I've seen people discuss. I was surprised it's a it wasn't flagged. Well, I mean, it was, a key, it was the key block. He wasn't going to make it. He was going to get tackled by Mark Andrews. When that block happened, I was pretty surprised they did not flag that for yeah. being in the back. It was in the back. That being said, I, I don't know that it, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, you've seen them not be called, but if the flag had come out, it wouldn't have shocked me in the slightest. It was in the back. Andrews flops a little bit, which rightfully so. He should try to flop. Man's also just run 80 yards, by the way, so he's probably quite tired at that point. This wasn't exactly the same situation, but remember two weeks ago we had the stat where the Jags had that um, game-winning touchdown on defense. It was the first time since 2000 that they had won, that there had been a fourth-quarter comeback right, without right. a first down. Yeah. This wasn't a comeback, but it was the same idea. The Bengals didn't pick up a first down in the fourth quarter. There's reasons for that, the offensive line injuries, and we'll talk about that. But mm. they didn't pick up a, four, a first down in the fourth quarter, and they had this game-winning touchdown. Um, from, like, an EPA standpoint – I mean, first, like, just from, like, a real football standpoint for a second here, this is a 14-point play, <laughs> right? This is a 14-point play. The Ravens are going in to take a presumably a seven-point lead, and instead they fumble – Give seven points to the Bengals, who then take a seven-point lead. Yeah, it's literally the biggest swing you can possibly have in the game. Officially, EPA is probably like 12. I've seen like 12 and a half, 12.6, because you assume there'll be some mixed, missed extra points, this right. and that, whatever. But you can't have a bigger swing of a play than this. Yeah. And I think the Ravens deserve a ton of credit for making this a game, right? Just keeping it, um, shortening the game with their, run, with their rushing attack and all that stuff. Huntley did make some good plays outside of this. Um, but the play before this was huge too, right? It was second and one, and he had just he had just made a really nice run, Huntley, to make it seven and one. Uh, second and one, they go play action, and he has Patrick Ricard open in the flat. It's really a catch and just step into the end zone, and he misses the throw. There was the replay makes it seem like maybe there was a tip on this pass, but I think it came out funky out of his hand. I think he just missed it. So back-to-back -back plays where Huntley misses the simple throw to the flat. And just to circle back to Brock Purdy from four hours ago, like the stuff that we don't want to necessarily give Brock Purdy credit for, like hitting the open throws, hitting the easy stuff, like it's still important. Like you just have to at least hit it, right? Huntley misses this throw, which probably is a walk-in touchdown, forces the third and one. And then the decision to go over the top, that's usually reserved not only for shorter yardage, but it's usually reserved for fourth down where the fumble probably doesn't matter as much, right? And you're just trying to get it over the goal line and the play ends or whatever. Huntley's far too, he's too far out. 
He's not long enough. He's only like six foot, six one. And uh, it was a great job by the Bengals, but man, what a swing in two plays where the Ravens look like they're set up, not only set up to pull the upset, but the Bengals aren't doing anything offensively. They're whole, they got two-fifths of their offensive line healthy now. Mm. And maybe they, the Ravens might have been able to crack down and, and stop a Joe Burrow comeback. Yeah, I mean, so this the big thing about this game is we got the backup quarterback as opposed to the backup's backup. Like when, True. when, when Baltimore we thought had, Anthony Brown could have been the guy, right? When Baltimore had Anthony Brown, a quarterback, it's like, they can't execute anything. Like there's no offense here. And even when Tyler Huntley had been the quarterback before this, it hadn't been the same as it was last year or previously when he come into the game for Lamar Jackson, you're like, okay, you know, he's capable of doing a reasonable Lamar Jackson impersonation. Like this isn't a complete drop off to disaster. It's not like going from Lamar Jackson to Anthony Brown. There's something here, and he hadn't really played at that level this season. This was more like that. Now, the grade may not be any better because of that fumble, and you know, there's a couple of bad plays in there that are gonna drag it down, but like this was much more like last year's version of Tyler Huntley, where there were still plays being made, and, and actually this offense looked a lot better than it had been, even though they only ended up with you know 17 points at the end of it all. Um, so when that happens, all of a sudden, it is much more of a game than it was. And then the other big thing then is that Cincinnati offensive line, which has now lost one starter in each of the last three games. And if it carries on at this rate and they make the Super Bowl, you're going to be starting at left tackle for them. I was trying to make the point uh, that some people missed. The Bengals worked so hard this offseason to rectify the offensive line now situation. it's all gone. And the point I was trying to make is I, they made it, they did a good job of that. I love what they did. We've given them so much praise for bringing in Ted Karras, Alex Kappa, and Lyle Collins to that offensive line, and also drafting Cardell Volson. They, they fixed, they didn't fix, but they turned over four-fifths of the offensive line, and they improved. Right. And now, due to injuries, their offensive line might be worse than what it was last <laughs> year on their playoff run. Um, so we'll see. Jonah Williams got bull rushed and got hurt yeah um while collins has been missing time and alex kappa got hurt uh back in week 18 three straight weeks they've lost it didn't look good for john lineman. williams either i mean he got he just got he got bull rushed out of his own acl was what it looked like um, and he's he's not had a great year anyway but he's, he's given up 12 sacks he's the epitome of a mediocre at you know an average left tackle he's having he's having the reverse of the career year he's having the worst year of his career yeah normally an average i mean he's he's in kind of like this riley reef Ter territory usually in career now, yeah but this right? is a particularly it's a bad year this is a bad year for him he's it tied is. for the league lead and giving up sacks with 12 um and jackson carmen came in and you know look, jackson carmen whiffed on a block so badly yeah. i think the broadcast i think they were trying to figure out if samaj p ryan was supposed to give him help give him chip help i don't know if he was but it did look pretty bad i'll find out um <laughs> and then he had holding call in there as well i mean the bengals still scored a touchdown in the third quarter to, you know they they they've created some some chunk plays uh, yeah, with Jamar I mean, Chase on the outside, but it's here's the thing with bad offensive line play, Sam. It doesn't literally show up on every single play, right? You play you keep seventy plays in a, in a game. It's not going to show up every mm -hmm. single play, but it's third and longs. It makes everything hard. The holding penalty. It's four or five extra plays, right? As poorly as Jonah Williams has been playing, if Jackson Carmen's worse than him, yeah, you're going to see it on two to three extra plays above what Jonah Williams was doing, right? And when it shows up at the wrong time, when it's third and long, or when it's a key rundown or whatever it is, or a holding call that's going to move you back 10, that's where it's going to show up. And that, that 
That's could the be a thing. big fact. Like Jackson Carmen have played some left tackle in college, and Jonah Williams has been bad enough this year that you're like, eh, maybe going from Jonah Williams to Jackson, maybe it's not that big a downgrade. And then pretty quickly you're like, eh, yeah, it probably is. So if, if Cincinnati is now downgraded at three spots in a pretty major way in the last three weeks, like that's huge. That's genuinely transformative for this offense in a negative way. And again, look, we saw them last year. They went on this run despite a garbage offensive line. We know they can overcome it, but it makes the job so much harder. Like if this team had their fully healthy offensive line, you would not bet against them going anywhere and winning. You would not bet against them beating Buffalo or Kansas City, regardless of the venue. Um, Now, and you're like, man, how does this offensive line block Chris Jones? Or how does this offensive line contend with Buffalo generally like it's just it makes everything so much harder and it man the injuries just suck like you injuries ruin these teams once you get to these crunch games where you can't afford to lose that kind of starting power um Cincinnati much uh, more I don't want to say conservative but it was a short passing attack right it was what the Ravens were giving him Jamar Chase used as an underneath receiver far more often than he usually is he did win on the outside on a couple vertical routes in that third quarter drive where they where they scored but he finishes with nine catches for 84 yards a lot of stuff underneath like I said um it was enough to get it done but I am I am curious to see how Cincinnati's offense gets hindered Burrow did get sacked four times again so you get back to this he's taking some hits and there are a few plays where it was it was just a jailbreak up front, right? And again, that might take away. Like, if that comes on the play where Jamar Chase is running away from a defender, or right. even if he's just one-on-one, and you're about to make that throw and you can't, though, that's where that's going to potentially I mean, it's like that Kirk Cousins fourth and eight, right? Yeah, like it's that, a lot like that. That play happens because the offensive line cannot block a guy, and it comes at, at the time you need it to hold up. And, you know, Cincinnati's entire offensive line is now becoming that. This was the one game where the uh, the team that led in rushing yards lost. Oh. The one game. It's playoff time. you got to do that. But, um, look, the Ravens, they played their game, man. They played their, their – they ran their game plan. They had Demarcus Robinson on a double move. It was whooping uh, Eli Apple for yeah. a 41-yard touchdown. Got enough plays to, to keep it close, but um, one of the weirdest plays in NFL history ends up turning the tide for Cincinnati. Also, by the way, even though, they, you know, the, the the Hail Mary thing at the end so Fourth almost ended up caught. Yeah. Like, that got deflected in the end zone, and I'm right on the borderline of whether James Prochet could or should have caught that. Like, it's very catchable. It ends up hitting his hand. Obviously, it's come off a deflection that's just in front of him, and that's an incredibly short period of time. To expect the guy to react. How much to... time did he have to see it? Because obviously you're waiting. Like you know that the yeah, tip drill. I mean, you're anticipating. Right. The tip not drill. much. I mean, it, it's obviously an incredibly quick reaction type of play. On the other hand, like you know, you see these, you see receivers train this kind of stuff specifically. Like yeah. not not that play, but quick reaction stuff. Like you know, I, I've seen drills of Stefan Diggs training where the ball is sort of thrown over his head from behind so he has to like immediately react to where it is and catch it one-handed you know what yeah. i mean like they specifically train this kind of instant quick reaction stuff so that you can make plays like this and it like he dives for it it ends up hitting his hand not quite being able to reel it in but that very very almost died the game um shout out to the bengals linebackers they played a great game uh logan wilson jermaine pratt you mentioned both of their 
impacts on the on the sneak. And Marcus Bailey was the guy chasing it down to execute that, you know, illegal block of the bank. <laughs> Marcus Bailey, illegal block. Akeem Davis-Gaither had the interception early. That's the other thing about this game, similar to the Buffalo-Miami game. You have an early interception in the Miami game by Skylar Thompson, early interception by Tyler Huntley, just misreads the defense, throws, a, throws an ill-advised uh, interception, and it should have been a blowout. But both of the underdogs <laughs> did keep it tight. And I know sometimes we get in this world where, okay, we know that the Bills are a better team than the Dolphins. We know that the Bengals are a better team than the Ravens without Lamar Jackson. It doesn't mean it's always going to show up in a you know, 10, 15, 20-point win. It's the NFL, right? The Ravens were able to shorten the game a little bit, keep it close, but both teams are maybe going in with like, like they, they didn't dominate their game when it looks like they're supposed to be with the Chiefs, right? They're supposed to be with the best teams well, in the AFC. It, it led to what I think is the most testy uh, head coach sideline interview I've seen since they started doing that, you know, where now every head coach has to give you 30 seconds either side of halftime. And they were interviewing John Harbaugh and just constantly needling him with questions that were pissing him off. I forget what the first one was, but then the second one was basically, you know, how many more? How much rope has has, uh, has Tyler Huntley got before we see Anthony Brown? And he was like, you know, fixed gr- grin in place. Like, well, let's just see if we get there. All right, you know, let's let's not go there too early. All right. Well, Lamar Jackson didn't travel. Mm. People tried to make a story of that. Should that be a story? Lamar Jackson did not come to Cincinnati for that game. We would have had him over. We could have had him come by the office, say hello. Mm. John Harbaugh seems to be so. There's there's players who are backing up Lamar Jackson, saying you got to see like he's limping around the uh the you know the the office the office <laughs> the uh, the locker room he's the the facility yeah right he's limping around. You have uh, RG three with a with an interesting tweet where he shows a picture of him hurting his knee in the mud in the 2012 playoff game where he tried to play through it. He tried to throw a brace on it and play. You have Sammy Watkins, his own receiver in Baltimore. Lamar's own receiver saying, strap it up and play. Like, throw a brace on and play. Where are you? Um, a lot of different perspectives here. And then you have John Harbaugh, seemingly the most vocal of anyone in Baltimore. You hear him talk the most anyway, who's just very like, nope. We, we talk about the players who are playing. He's not here, right? So we're not going to talk about Lamar Jackson. He also said, I didn't know about Lamar Jackson's tweet. I didn't know that he had swelling, right? I mean, there's a massive disconnect between everybody in this situation right now. Yeah, I, Baltimore's the way Baltimore have addressed the situation publicly, which is largely John Harbaugh, has been confusing. Um, I don't quite understand why they have acted so in the dark about the whole thing. Unless it is, this is conveniently working to our benefit when it comes to negotiations, right? It's not a good thing that Lamar is out. Nobody's happy about it. But as long as that's the case the more we make it seem like he's being an asshole, the better this is for us negotiating with him, which starts again in a couple of weeks. I don't know if that's the case, but if you're looking for why he, they would be being so vague or I don't know anything about his injury, that's a reason. I'm not saying it is the reason, but it would be a reason that explains how they've been approaching this whole scenario. You know why we're here too? Why is that? Maybe the Browns, <coughs> the Browns, Tyler playing chess here right they knew lamar jackson's contracts coming up do you think they gave deshaun watson 250 million guaranteed just to they gave Wa- the Ravens? they gave watson this ridiculous market changing contract oh we're just going to give him all the guaranteed money the guy who doesn't 
deserve it based off everything that's just happened off the field. And uh, it's just going to screw up the Ravens. Hmm. Because now Lamar, who's his own agent, is going to say, Deshaun Watson's got that kind of money. I'm better than him, or at least as good as him. Um, that's the other tricky part is Lamar Jackson, right, is his own agent, right? And you, yeah. usually usually agents, you have you have some honesty with them. You know agents are bringing the best of their clients to light, and they're thinking about all these things contractually and all that stuff. But you can also be like, yeah, but you can you can voice your concerns to the agent, right? That's what negotiate, negotiating is. He brings the best of the player. You tear down the player a little bit, figure out their value, and uh, it's got to be tough if you don't have that buffer yeah. in this whole situation. I, I mean, the whole situation is weird. I don't – I mean, it seems unusual that this is an injury that's kept him out as long as it has. All of the sort of Twitter doctor-type people were surprised that this ended up lingering as long as it did. Um, but that kind of thing can happen, I guess. But – the whole thing is weird from the unusual duration of the injury to how Baltimore have been talking about it the whole way to the fact that, you know, percolating the background here is that they don't have this long-term deal worked out, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, that's, I mean, that's an off season conversation for them. I, I don't, of all the stories in this, I care less about Lamar Jackson, not traveling to Cincinnati. Did he come to Cincinnati in week 18? I think Supposedly so. I'm pretty sure he, he was on the sideline there. I think I remember seeing a shot of him. It, either way, the only thing that's that's relevant there is that that is notable and unusual. Like, long time. Not every injured player travels. No, There's but, a history of players not traveling, but when you have last week and this week in the same exact spot. And long time, you know, journalists are like, why isn't he here? You know what I mean? Like, people that know are were like, well, that's unusual. So it is noteworthy whether or not there's an explanation for it, which could be entirely down to the dude has knee swelling. Don't make him get on a plane get on and a plane. stand on the sideline yeah. for three hours. Like, this isn't helping anybody. Yeah, he may have done that. I don't know if he traveled to previous road right. games. He may have done it last week and was like, this made my knee worse. I'm not doing that. <laughs> exactly. Or he might have just been like, I don't want to see my teammates play in the playoffs. I'm going to be upset. I don't know. Who knows? Please don't project what it could be. Let's not guess. Um, but ongoing storyline this offseason, Lamar Jackson – Will be a free agent. Will they franchise tag? Will that piss them off if they do? Will they re-sign them? Will they trade them? Will they, you know, tag and trade? We'll see. There's a lot to discuss there with the Ravens. Anything else from a Ravens perspective here? No. Yeah, no more use for that team. Kyle Hamilton had a good game. Yeah, huge, uh, huge a good force season. fumble. Yeah, he ended up after the early. Uh, Weird plays in coverage, whether they were his fault or not, and some missed tackles where he was just it was mostly in, flailing in the preseason. He's yeah, it was mostly in the preseason where he looked like completely incapable of covering the slot. Just looked like a guy, a fish out of water, somebody that had no business being tasked with that. They did a good job easing him, though. There were games where he only played 15 or 20 snaps well, as he's had a, a dime-type of... player where he'd blitz a lot. I mean, they tapped into his skill set well, and they eased him back in after a rough start. He's had a few different roles. He sort of started off as this full-time safety because they had injuries, and then they dialed him way back to this situational guy once everyone got healthy. And then as the year wore on, he became – this guy that got brought in as a sort of specific, your guy, the, the matchup weapon, the, the tight end eraser. And he was this yeah. sort of tight end covering the slot type of safety who was playing, you know, 25, 30 snaps a game. And then the last couple of games, they've needed him as a full-time player again. But gone from sort of early, it was like, oh, wow, this guy is, there's a couple of very specific things he cannot do to actually he ended up almost doing that exclusively by the end and doing it really well. Like he's, 
remember, Kyle Hamilton as a prospect was like the best safety prospect that we'd seen for years, and we were sort of arguing, how high do you take a guy like that? And he's looking like that player again. Joe Burrow played pretty well, I think, all things considered. Uh, for the Bengals, a couple times he had to move the chains with his legs. And uh, overall, pretty solid game from him, even though the stats were not spectacular. Mm -hmm. So it sets up um, a game we've been anticipating all year. Remember, unfortunately, we had uh, the DeMar Hamlin incident in the last uh, Bills-Bengals game. We're going to be in Buffalo next week. Bengals, two versus three seed. Could be should be great um i don't want to spend the next 20 minutes arguing about this but it seems kind of wild to me that of all the scenarios that the nfl went out of their way I was to avoid ask. the home field situation it's like the, the Bengals have to travel to buffalo in a game that would have gone the other way if they'd played that one out and won really it's, it's almost like they just forgot no so what they did is they treated it like well that game doesn't count so we so they have the same number of games so therefore, it was already a tiebreaker in place. That was the reason? Yes. That's the reason. The dumbest reason for okay, any so, of this thing. So the Ravens-Bengals, they had to do a coin flip because, because they, they were going to have uneven number. games. Yes. And we didn't know. We don't know what would have happened. Mm -hmm. But if you just use the we don't know what would have happened reasoning, we don't know what would have happened in, in yeah. Bills-Bengals. And if the Bengals had won that but game. But it doesn't matter because that game just didn't a, happen. So we just take it out. And now they've got an even number of games. So we treat it like this team's already won. Which, by the way, everybody should be playing 16 games. I mean, I said at the time, there was no good solution to that, right? At the point where they decided to abandon the game, all you had was a sequence of bad options. It was just, what is the least bad option you can come up with? Even with that starting point, they came up with a tremendously bad solution to this. Because I was going to ask the question. I didn't realize that that was the answer. So yes. if I ask the question, somebody's going to say, well, of course this makes sense because the Bills are 13-3 and three and the Bengals are 12-4. and four. That it's was the logic difference. is because they had the same number of games once you cancel that, and therefore Buffalo has a better record. Even though 18 plays into when, that game or whatever it was, Cincinnati was winning and would have, over, would have flipped it What's had the they weather? played that to the conclusion. What's the weather in Buffalo uh, Sunday? I'm going to guess it's cold. I mean, if it's, if it's not five degrees, I mean, if it's not a super weather game, I'm going to be upset. Because we could have gone to the game, you know, if it was over here. 34 degrees. Oh, snow. 34% chance of snow Sunday. I mean, that would make it okay for me, you know. Even if the Bengals are getting screwed, I'd be okay with that if it's snow. A few snow showers developing later in the day. Come on, Lake Effect. Let's go Lake Effect snow. Bring it. We need, we need a snow game for this uh, divisional round. Anyway. It's been exactly two and a half hours. We did it. I hope everybody hits that it's thumbs a up. Brisk show. Hit that like button. Don't you love us? Don't forget. New changes. Changes. Back tomorrow. Today. Starting tomorrow. There's an extra PFF NFL podcast tomorrow. I won't be here. Renner will be, though. The return. Yeah. The glorious return of Michael Renner. Oh, dude. Draft can we, expert. Can we make it an entry? Can we have an entrance for him? And sure. what's Mike, what's Renner's entrance music? Mine was the Ultimate Warrior theme coming out to pitch. Good one. What would yours? What would your entrance music be? I don't know. We didn't, didn't have entrance music. The Ultimate Warrior is a good one, though. I like that. Yeah, thank you. It's good entrance music. Yeah. I didn't bring that kind of energy to the mound. Mm -hmm. I tried to conserve it. So maybe mismatched when Instead I was just running. like slowly jogging Instead out to of the like mound. sprinting out to the, the mound no. from there a mile away. There were some pitchers who were like, they were all yeah. You just like slowly juiced up and out. sprint to the mound. I was like, conserve energy. Let's yeah. go. Um, so I say you start the show with 
Renner entering with some sort of entrance music, his return to the PFF NFL podcast. Sure we could do that. Um, but yeah, Renner's going to be here. We're going to have an extra show this week, maybe uh, five shows going forward after right. that. We'll see. Um, but I'll be back here on Wednesday. So uh, just more, more PFF NFL contest, mm-hmm. uh, pod, podcast content here. Send us uh, emails if you have topics or suggestions for that Wednesday show, NFLpodcast at pff.com. Also, the email to send us if you have draft questions, segments, suggestions for Renner's appearances. Oh, yeah. Draft season for 24 teams now. We're up to 24. Uh, sorry, 23. There's a game tonight. Mm. There's one more game tonight. We'll also, um, do we save the recap? What happens with the recap? You and I on Wednesday, or are you guys going to do it tomorrow? Who knows? It's a whole new show. Bucks Cowboys tonight. Enjoy the game. I'll see you Wednesday. We'll see you guys, though, tomorrow.